CVS and Walgreens have agreed to pay more than $10 billion to settle lawsuits related to the opioid epidemic. They ignored red flags and they failed to prevent opioids from flowing into communities at um, huge levels. It is Wednesday, November 2nd. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon. I'm Sharon Brody in for Lisa Mullins. Days ahead of the midterm election, President Biden is giving his closing argument on the state of democracy. In Orange County, California, a longtime Republican stronghold, some Asian Americans have lost faith in the GOP. I just can no longer wear the Republican label at this time, especially after the party tried to whitewash what happened on January 6th. And Folgers wants to convince you that the coffee brand is cool. It's 401, now this news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. Just days from midterm elections, President Biden's expected to deliver a primetime address tonight on U.S. democracy. He will do so near the Capitol, site of the pro-Trump siege last year that attempted to stop Congress from certifying the results of the 2020 presidential election, then-candidate Joe Biden won. President Biden is expected to talk about the January 6th insurrection. He is also expected to address the attack against House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's family when a man broke into her San Francisco home allegedly looking for her. She was not at home, but her husband, Paul Pelosi, was, and he was violently attacked and injured. The suspect faces state and federal charges. United States Capitol Police security cameras recorded the break-in at Speaker Pelosi's San Francisco home. NPR's Deirdre Walsh has details. When 42-year-old David DePap broke in through a rear door at Speaker Pelosi's home, U.S. Capitol Police cameras captured the intrusion. The Washington Post first reported that the cameras caught the incident, but that no one was watching them at the time. DePap assaulted Pelosi's 82-year-old husband, Paul, with a hammer. When San Francisco police arrived on the scene, they witnessed the attack and immediately arrested DePap. There was no longer 24-7 police presence outside the home, which had been implemented after the attack on the Capitol last year. Deirdre Walsh, NPR News. In Uvalde, Texas, residents will gather in their town square tonight to remember victims of the Robb Elementary School shooting and celebrate their lives. Today is Dia de los Muertos, a holiday rooted in Mexican indigenous culture during which families honor loved ones who've died. For a small Texas community where 19 children and two teachers were murdered less than six months ago, this occasion holds even deeper significance. Texas Public Radio's Dan Katz has more. Families and friends will do their best to celebrate the lives of those they've lost, and in Uvalde, the lives that were taken. This year is just going to be heartbreaking, but then come years on, it will mend and we can eventually get through this and heal. Event organizer Katie Fulton says in the past, people in Uvalde would travel to nearby cities like San Antonio to observe Dia de los Muertos. All my life I've lived here. And I don't think there's been any type of celebration like this. There'll be music and food and dancing and a community ofrenda where people may combine their offerings and memories of lost loved ones, perhaps a moment of unity for a community that's been deeply torn. I'm Dan Katz in San Antonio. The Federal Reserve has raised its benchmark borrowing rate by three-quarters of a percentage point today. It's the fourth such supersized rate hike since June. From Washington, this is NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. On Beacon Hill, legislative leaders say they have finally reached agreement on a $3.7 billion economic development bill that has been stalled since the end of July. WBUR's Steve Brown has details. The bill got hung up when at the last minute it was learned the state needed to return close to $3 billion in surplus revenue to taxpayers. Legislative leaders indicated the uncertainty over how much money was to be returned kept them from finalizing the package. In a joint statement, Speaker Ron Mariano and Senate President Karen Spilka said today's agreement provides relief for rising energy costs, boosts housing production, and provides immediate assistance to the MBTA. The agreement does not contain additional tax cuts as had originally been included. The leaders left the door open to revisiting additional tax cuts in the next legislative session. It's not known exactly when the full legislature will vote to accept today's agreement. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Steve Brown. Governor Charlie Baker is giving an overall positive assessment of outgoing MBTA General Manager Steve Poftak. Poftak announced yesterday that after four years at the helm, he will step down in January. The move follows a recent federal investigation that found major safety issues at the T. Despite the problems, Governor Baker says Poftak also accomplished a lot. I think Steve did many things very well. The system is far more modern than it was when he became general manager. The bus system is in much better shape than it was when he became general manager. The commuter rail is in much better shape. Baker says the biggest challenge for the T will be to hire up to 1,000 new employees to fill positions that are funded but currently open. A graduate student at Northeastern University has been sentenced to 30 years in a prison in Saudi Arabia. The Associated Press reports Prince Abdullah bin Faisal al-Saud is a member of the Saudi royal family. The AP says officials in that country monitored a phone call in which he spoke with relatives about the imprisonment of a cousin. He was arrested upon his return to the country, and his sentence was increased to 30 years in August. The AP reports Saudi surveillance on Saudis living in the U.S. has been stepped up over the last five years. In sports, tonight the Celtics face the Cavs in Cleveland. In the forecast, mostly clear tonight with lows in the mid-40s. A sunny Thursday, tomorrow's temperatures in the mid-60s. Friday, plenty of sunshine and highs in the upper 60s. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California, which is a state that's usually pretty predictable during election season. But this year, there are several competitive House races happening in Orange County, which has been a Republican stronghold for nearly a century, but has veered left in recent decades. One force behind that shift is the county's growing share of Asian American voters. Nationwide, Asian Americans are the fastest growing racial or ethnic group. And while it is an ethnically diverse group of voters, nearly two thirds of them voted Democrat in the last two elections. But now, in these midterm elections, Democrats are worried that some of that recent Asian American support could erode, which could make all the difference in close races like California's 45th district. 
The campaign for the Democratic candidate in this race is unfolding on the second floor of a strip mall right above a pho restaurant in the heart of Orange County. We need all the luck right now. <laughs> this is the campaign office of Democrat Jay Chen, one of two Asian Americans competing for this seat. And on a recent weekend, volunteers like Malia Williamson prepared to canvas voters in this majority Asian American congressional district. Asian American voters are, there's a bit of hesitation when it comes to voting, and we need to reach out to them and let them know that their vote does matter. Their vote does matter to Chen's campaign because Republican Michelle Steele is slightly favored to win this race. And, you know, even though Chen's a Democrat, his volunteers have been courting Republican Asian-American voters who've grown disillusioned with their party. It's a shift that Huang Nguyen, a Chen volunteer, has seen happening in his own Vietnamese-American family. They were formerly Republicans, and they just feel like the Republican Party has been too extreme for them. And that is saying something. These are lifelong Republicans. Over time, the Republican Party lost its way in terms of not investing enough in the growing Asian American population and diversifying Asian American population in Orange County. Karthik Ramakrishnan is a professor at UC Riverside, and he directs the National Asian American Survey. He says this movement of Asian American voters away from the Republican Party, it's been happening all over this country in recent decades. What you saw between 1992 and 2012 was the most dramatic shift for any group, not just racial group, any voting demographic in this country, shift from the Republican Party to the Democratic Party. So Asian American voters voted for George H.W. Bush over Clinton. And by 2012, you know, they had among the strongest levels of support for Obama over Romney. One of those voters who swung to the left for Obama is Eugene Hung, a 51-year-old Chinese-American voter in Orange County. 2012 is the first time I, I voted Democratic for the presidency. Hung says, look, he voted Republican for decades, but he voted for Obama in 2012 because he says he saw the Republican Party changing in ways that didn't make him feel included. We don't seem to be as welcome in the Republican Party. I mean, they purposely seem to be emphasizing rhetoric and policy that seems to say to people like me that we don't really need you. And now... Hung isn't registered with either party. To better understand how this political shift is playing out today among Asian American voters, we talked to two longtime Republicans who are in the middle of rethinking their allegiance to the GOP. The first is a former Republican politician from Orange County, Tyler Deep, who's Vietnamese American. He was a state assemblyman and served on his city council. Now, Deep supports Republican Michelle Steele, but he recently deregistered from the Republican Party. I just can no longer wear the Republican label at this time, especially after the uh, Republican Party uh, tried to whitewash what happened on January 6, uh, 2021. It was really the last straw for me. I believe at this time the Republican Party is not a party of ideas or principle. Uh, it is now becoming a party of one person. And, and because of that, I re-register to no party preference, or in this case, like, a, like an independent. 
Meanwhile, Violet G., who's still a registered Republican, is volunteering for her district's Democratic House candidate, Katie Porter. G's a Chinese-American voter in Orange County. At this moment, I feel like a registration doesn't really matter, right? I want to do the right thing and choose the right leader rather than see the party. So I'm looking for a good candidate. I asked Deepin G what values first drew them to the Republican Party. So at that time, I feel like the Republican policy is um, better to the middle class and also care about the like family values, right? Mm-hmm. But I think back then, family values doesn't mean you are like homophobia, you know? So there's no such divided opinions like today, you know? That back then, I feel like everyone's pretty calm and friendly. It didn't feel as polarizing, the politics back then. Yeah, exactly. What about you, Tyler? What drew you to the party? It, it was opportunity and the ability to make something out of my life by being a Republican. Uh, and what attracted me to stay in the party, uh, the GOP, because of uh, freedom, uh, the ability to uh, work hard and make something out of your life uh, as the first generation immigrant. Um, I value that a lot. Mm. Uh, and, and I think that's something that also attracted a lot of Asian American uh, to the Republican Party. Well, yeah, we just heard Tyler articulate some of the values that he believes are Republican values. Violet, was there some point, a time where you felt the Republican Party lost you in some way, lost your vote? Yeah, I I feel like it is, right? So I think uh, since Donald Trump, I started losing the faith uh, on this party. I don't believe this party is is Republican anymore, to Mm -hmm. be honest. I want to delve into that a little more. You felt alienated from the Republican Party increasingly during the Trump administration. Can you explain why? What did you see? What did you feel during the Trump administration that made you disconnect from the party? Yeah, like starting in 2016, I personally experienced like a, a racial discrimination even on the street. Like, for example, one night, I was in like a nearby Target parking lot. I was in the car and I saw a white lady. She made that Asian face, like lifted the, the, the eyes out to me. Iconic, like insulting to an Asian woman. Right. That's not acceptable. So I feel like, a, a, you know, a lot of Asian hate that coming from there. Since 2016, Trump uh, become a president and he, he promote that environment uh, before it was not like that obvious, but after 2016, it was really obvious to the community. Tyler, I want to turn to you now. You're a voter in the 45th district now, which is a closely watched swing district in California. I know that you no longer work in politics full time, but you did endorse the Republican candidate in your district, Michelle Steele. So it seems like there are still elements of the Republican platform that appeal to you. Can, can you talk about what those elements are? I I believe that we should have less taxes in this country and less government involved in in our daily lives. Like a lot of my friends are small business owners, mm-hmm. just like a lot of first generation immigrants where you know they just don't have the ability to go to college. So to make a better life for them and their family, they tend to open up a small shop, a small restaurant. And what they want and what I want is less regulations. You know, like these days, in order to open a, a small company right, mm-hmm, in mm-hmm. California, you have to go through so many layer of governments. We just want to be left alone so that we can run our own noodle shop mm-hmm. or 
or or do the thing that we want without seeing a government inspector breathing down our neck. Well, I am curious, which party now do you think does a better job at engaging Asian American voters or seems to be intentionally engaging Asian American voters? Um, I don't know if it's intentional or not, right? But we care about the results, right? So uh, I feel like even like uh, in our district, I'm a volunteer for some uh, like a high school or middle school. I heard from the kids that often they invite like Republican candidates. How do they anyone accept the kids' invitation? But all the Democrats accept the invitation and share stories with the kids. Tyler, you know, many of the candidates running for congressional seats in Orange County are Asian American in this upcoming election, including both candidates in the district where you vote. Let me ask you, when it comes to cultivating Asian American candidates rather than cultivating Asian American voters, per se, do you think the Republican Party has done a better job in recent years? No. um, From my observation, after, what, 17 years of being on the front line, the Democratic Party and uh, its apparatus are much more intentional in growing a young farm team of future Asian leaders than the Republican Party. Uh, I can give you many examples of the infrastructure that the Democratic Party has in place in California to mentor and train young Asian Americans to come into civic or political life. Not only is there a party, but they have invested heavily into nonprofit group that really acts as advocacy group for all things related to a progressive agenda. Uh, whereas in the Republican side, Uh, if you will. There's not a lot of that. Can I ask, any plans to return to politics for you? Maybe someday when when I feel like my personal politics can appeal to whether Republican or or, or Democratic voters, then then, then I'll come back. But I think right now, I see a lot of extremes on both sides. And where I fall on the political spectrum, uh, I won't get out of uh, of any political primaries. Tyler Deep is a voter and former Republican politician from Orange County, and Violet G is a voter in Orange County as well. Thank you to both of you so much. This was such a joy to speak to both of you. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 418, and coming up on All Things Considered, Israeli reactions to the potential return of former Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Sunbug Solar, helping to grow renewable energy in Massachusetts since 2009. To learn about solar energy employment opportunities, visit sunbugsolar.com. In business news, the average price of home heating oil in Massachusetts has jumped 12 cents a gallon since last week. The State Department of Energy Resources survey shows the average price at 5.81 a gallon. A year ago, it was three dollars. 32 cents a gallon. On Wall Street today, the Dow dropped 1.55%, 505 points to close at 32,147. The NASDAQ closed down 366 points at 10,524. The S&P 500 closed down 2.5%, that's 96 points at 3,759. Marketplace has a full range of business news at 6.30 here on WBUR. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts, helping you find a Medics Medicare supplemental plan that works for you. Visit bluecrossma.com slash go. 435 House seats, 35 Senate seats, 36 governorships, and countless local positions up for election this November. Keep listening to WBUR for the midterm updates you need. It's 65 degrees in Boston, overnight lows dropping to the mid-40s. Tomorrow, a sunny Thursday with highs in the mid-60s. This is 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Amazon Business. From small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business works to help simplify the supplies buying process. Learn more at amazonbusiness.com. From Procter & Gamble, maker of z Pure Z's Gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at z And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Israel appears to be on the verge of instating what could end up being the most right-wing government in that country's history. Parliamentary elections were yesterday. Most of the results are now in. And the party of former Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has the most votes. Days of coalition talks still lie ahead, but Netanyahu is poised to return to the job he held for a decade until he was ousted last year amid corruption charges. Let's go to NPR's Daniel Estrin in Tel Aviv. Hey there, Daniel. Hi, Mary Louise. Quite the comeback here by Netanyahu if he pulls it off. How did he do it? He consolidated his base. Uh, You know, his his opponents on the center-left were fractured. They were infighting. One iconic left-wing party may not even get any seats in parliament at all, the Merits Party. But uh, meanwhile, Netanyahu uh, made sure that several far-right factions would join forces into one big party. Uh, They were Jewish nationalists and supporters of Jewish settlements in the occupied West Bank and and politicians who are anti-LGBTQ rights. So they all ran together and promised to crack down on Palestinians. And this is in a year where there have been some deadly attacks on Israelis. So listen to Netanyahu's supporters um, overnight chanting at election headquarters. They're chanting law and order, law and order. Now, the star, uh, the new star of these elections was Netanyahu's ally, Itamar Ben-Gvir. He is far right. And uh, here's what his supporters were chanting. They're chanting death to terrorists, uh, which is an anti-Arab epithet here. So uh, you have to understand Ben Gvir is a central figure in Israel's extreme right. He gained a lot of popularity in this election. He helped deliver Netanyahu to his apparent victory. That apparently is worrying the U.S. State Department. Spokesman Ned Price said earlier today, we hope that all Israeli government officials will continue to share the values of an open democratic society, including respecting minorities. Interesting. So a bit of a kingmaker there. Okay, what about the people who don't like Netanyahu, who are opposed to his coming back into power? Yeah, liberal Israelis are very upset today, uh, posting all kinds of social media memes. One of them I saw says, we turned our clocks back for daylight savings time. Why do we have to turn the clocks back a thousand years backwards? 
Um, I also spoke with activist Asma al-Qadi. She is among the 20% of Israel who are Palestinian citizens. And she says she's worried about what the far right in power could mean for her community. And they woke up into a nightmare. It's such hard morning to us all. Israel is going to a sad, dark, bad place. She's especially worried, Mary Louise, about the, this far-right icon I mentioned, Itamar Ben-Gvir. He is expected to be a cabinet minister in Netanyahu's apparent government. Uh, just about 30 seconds left, Daniel, but what are the priorities for this apparent government? Well, analysts I speak to say Netanyahu would probably try to resist major changes in policy toward the Palestinians. He's going to be under heavy U.S. pressure. But analysts are convinced that Netanyahu and his allies want to make radical changes to the judiciary and eliminate some checks and balances. Remember, Netanyahu uh, is on trial facing fraud charges. He wants to avoid prison. That's NPR's Daniel Estrin in Tel Aviv. Thank you. You're welcome. Folgers is trying to be cool. Though it is the best seller of ground coffee in U.S. stores, the brand has had to confront a painful realization. Its reputation is not great. NPR's Alina Seljuk reports on the coffee company's makeover. You know it's coming, so let's hear it. This jingle is possibly the most famous thing about Folgers, an ad campaign so successful we're still singing it almost 40 years later. Except it's almost 40 years later. Is Folgers the best part of waking up? When I began asking this, I got answers like Ayanna Jackson's. It's sludge in your cup. It's just not. Sorry, Folgers. <laughs> Jackson from Maryland is a strong no. It's what my parents drank. It's what my grandma drank. Luke Simmons is proud to carry on the tradition. There have been a couple of times uh, where I've offered my friends some coffee and they've been like, what kind is it? And I'll be like, it's a good old Folgers motor oil. <laughs> so people have made fun of you. Oh, yeah, definitely. Simmons lives in Arizona and starts every morning with a cup or two of black coffee, usually Folgers. It's the first cup of coffee I ever had was a cup of Folgers coffee made in my mom's auto drip. A carafe brewed on a timer shared with family before school and work. Classic, right? That's a nice way to put it. Candidly, many consumers were dismissing Folgers as their grandmother's coffee. That's the way Jeff Tanner put it. He's in charge of the brand as the head of marketing at J.M. Smucker, the parent company of Folgers. Well, we could certainly see it in our sales numbers. We had been losing market share for quite some time. The brand had been losing relevance. It's almost 170 years old, a throwback in a time of single-origin nitro lattes. Tanner says his team still found the product itself testing well, but its perception needed a wake-up. Along came a radical idea, an ad campaign that says, heck yeah, we're grandma's coffee. As Joan Jett rocks her 80s counterculture anthem, there's a parade of others who are cool with Folgers, the crew of the company's roastery in New Orleans, some local female bikers, brass music star Trombone Shorty. A mainstream brand attempting an earnest snub to coffee snobbery. Tanner admits he took some convincing to agree to this campaign. Who goes out there and says, well, we know some of you don't think we're that good, but 
we don't care. The hope was to appeal to millennials and the Gen X. Tanner says it worked. In recent months, data from research firm IRI showed Folgers gaining ground with those age groups faster than competitors. Every year, Folger sells over a billion dollars worth of ground coffee. And right now, in the moment of high inflation, it's drawing shoppers away from pricier brands. We are seeing and we continue to expect to see consumers trading down. Our hope and belief is that we're not seeing it as a trade down. Just because it's cheaper doesn't mean it can't be cool, which is what we were going after. Okay, ready? Yes. I told my colleague Mary Yang about the story. At 22, she's the newest generation of coffee drinkers. She didn't associate Folgers with a bad reputation, but she'd also never bought it. I found an old Mr. Coffee machine in our office kitchen, and we did the thing. I don't think I've ever used one of these in my life. It's hot, all right. Mm, we definitely made it too light. You know too much about coffee. <laughs> Turns out I made old school coffee for a former barista. She was kind and said she would totally finish the cup. Later she confessed she did not. Pro tip, you gotta drink it while it's hot. Alina Selyuk, NPR News. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Sharon Brody. It is 429 and ahead on All Things Considered, you'll hear about the $13 billion opioid settlement reached with some of the biggest pharmacy chains in the U.S. That and more coming up on All Things Considered. You can make informed choices on ballot questions and other voting decisions with the WBUR Voter Guide. You'll find answers and explanations at wbur.org slash voter guide. It's 65 degrees in Boston, lows in the mid-40s tonight. Tomorrow, a sunny Thursday, highs in the mid-60s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballets, as anticipated. With works by choreographer William Forsyth, including a world premiere, November 3rd to 13th. Tickets at bostonballet.org. Hey, this is Steve Inskeep with NPR News, reminding you that your public radio station is a service, and the people who use that service are the largest single source of support for that service. Your old car can play a role. It can help pay for the producers, editors, and audio engineers, and others who create Morning Edition every day. Your old car can do that. Here's how. Learn more at WBUR.org slash cars. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. The White House has gathered information that North Korea is covertly supplying Russia with a significant amount of artillery shells for its war in Ukraine. National Security Council spokesman John Kirby says Pyongyang is trying to obscure the shipments by funneling them through third-party countries. Back in September, North Korea publicly denied that it intended to provide ammunition to Russia for their use in Ukraine. However, our information indicates that the DPRK is covertly supplying Russia's war in Ukraine with a significant number of artillery shells while obfuscating the real destination of the armed shipments by trying to make it appear as though they're being sent to countries in the Middle East or North Africa. 
but Kirby says the artillery shipments are unlikely to change the momentum of Ukraine's counteroffensive against Russian troops or the eventual outcome of the war. Vladimir Putin, meanwhile, says Russia reserves the right to again withdraw from an agreement brokered by the U.N. and Turkey that allows the export of Ukrainian grain through the Black Sea. Putin's remarks come just hours after Moscow said it was rejoining the deal. Here's NPR's Charles Maines. Speaking to his Security Council, President Putin reaffirmed the grain agreement was back in force after Turkey and the U.N. received written guarantees from Ukraine that it would not launch attacks on Russia from inside the humanitarian shipping corridors. Putin warned Russia could pull out again if Ukraine violates those terms, but insisted Moscow would then donate grain exports to poorer countries for free. The Kremlin suspended participation over the weekend following what it says was a Ukrainian drone attack on its Black Sea fleet that originated from waters in Inside the humanitarian zone, the pullout prompted charges by Ukraine and its allies that Russia was trying to weaponize global food supplies. Charles Maines, NPR News, Moscow. Stocks finish lower on Wall Street. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Massachusetts is getting nearly $159 million to help low-income residents heat their homes this winter. The federal funds are part of the Low-Income Home Energy Assistance Program. The money can be used to pay home heating bills or make home energy repairs and upgrades. Nationwide, the Biden administration has allocated $4.5 billion for the program. A comment from Boston City Council member Frank Baker derailed the council's redistricting work today. The council is considering a map put forth by the redistricting chair, City Councilor Liz Braden, that would split South Boston into two electoral districts. Baker said Catholic priests in the city are concerned about that proposal. They're viewing this exercise as an all-out assault on Catholic life in Boston. And it's not lost on them that the person that's leading the charge is a Protestant from Fermanagh. Fermanagh is a county in Northern Ireland where Braden grew up. Braden says she's proud of her heritage and that her childhood experiences inform her passion for voting rights. Council President Ed Flynn scolded Baker for the remark and called a temporary recess. When the session resumed, Baker apologized, but also added that Catholic neighborhoods in his district are under attack. Two local organizations have filed a lawsuit against the Environmental Protection Agency over pollution in the Charles, Mystic, and Neponset Rivers in Boston. The pollution is tied to stormwater runoff. The Charles River Watershed Association and the Conservation Law Foundation say the EPA has failed to enforce a law that would require private businesses to reduce that runoff. Contract negotiations are underway between the town of South Hadley and its teachers union. The talks are scheduled to last until 830 tonight. If no deal is reached, then the union says its members will work to rule starting tomorrow. That means educators will only work contractually obligated hours and won't come in early or stay late to handle responsibilities such as lesson planning or grading exams. Teachers are seeking better staffing and better pay for paraprofessionals. District officials say they want an agreement that is fair to teachers in South Hadley and fiscally responsible for the town. It's 434. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BU's Metropolitan College, offering a part-time master's degree in arts administration and a graduate certificate in arts management focused on the management, fundraising, policy, and legal issues of mission-driven arts organizations. Learn more at bu.edu met.
It is 65 degrees in Boston with lows overnight dropping to the mid-40s. A sunny Thursday, tomorrow's highs in the mid-60s. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Dataiku, a platform for everyday AI to help organizations make AI part of their daily business. Designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot com. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of any size to attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from one place. More at Indeed.com slash NPR. And from the Lemelson Foundation. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. The two biggest pharmacy chains in the nation will pay more than $10 billion to settle lawsuits over the toll of opioids. CVS and Walgreens have agreed to pay what could be one of the last rounds of huge settlements after years of litigation, litigation over the drug industry's role in the overdose crisis. More than half a million deaths in the U.S. over the past 20 years have been linked to to opioid overdoses. Well, Sharon Turlip is covering this for the Wall Street Journal. Hi there, welcome. Thanks for having me. What were these companies accused of doing? Like, what was their role in all of this? Sure. I mean, the the core of the argument is that they ignored red flags and they failed to prevent opioids from flowing into communities at um, you know at huge levels. And is this settlement an, an admission of fault? It is not at all. There's uh, Both the companies have been clear that this is not an admission of guilt. And what the pharmacies say is that their pharmacists were filling prescriptions that were issued by doctors, so essentially doing their job. All right. Okay. So the money that's been agreed, it's a lot, $10 billion. It will go to state governments, local governments, Native American tribal governments, not to individuals. Is that right? Correct. It won't go to individuals. It can't go to state general funds. It will all go to these uh, state level governments. Um, I mean, there's a lot that that communities are talking about, things like medical assistance, job assistance that eventually would reach people. But in terms of, of you know, a chunk of cash landing in someone's bank account um, who is affected by this, that's not what's happening here. Mm-hmm. Um among the question marks still out there is whether a third major pharmacist, Walmart, uh, may eventually become part of this picture. What what do you know about that? Sure. Walmart, I think everybody's waiting for a final word on Walmart. Walmart has been involved in some of the earlier settlements. They've certainly been involved in these lawsuits. And so we're um, waiting to see what, if any, deal they, they've come up with. Mm-hmm. And in terms of the two that are out there now and, and that you have your reporting has confirmed, CVS and Walgreens, is this the end of the road for them or is there more litigation pending to do with the opioid epidemic? They certainly hope it's the end of the road. But the situation with this settlement is that each entity has to decide whether to sign on or not sign on. And if they don't sign on, they could continue to pursue separate claims, which uh, both the companies have said they would fight if, if that happens. Uh, OK, so one of the state government, local government could say, nope, I'm not in on this deal and we're going to continue to pursue our own litigation. Correct. Okay. And where does this sit in the broader context of the myriad lawsuits that have been filed over opioids and the epidemic? It's by far the biggest settlement for the pharmacies. Uh, Overall, it's smaller than the deal reached by uh, Johnson & Johnson and drug drug distributors in 2021. That was a $25 billion deal. Um, Interestingly, Purdue Pharma um, 
they had a $6 billion payment, which was uh, slightly bigger than uh, CVS and Purdue Pharma is, of course, the maker of OxyContin. Yeah. So what will you be watching for next? Well, we'll be watching for Walmart for sure. And, you know, I think it's going to be really interesting to see how this money is spent. So I think we'll be really looking to see it, you know, what happens to this money now that it's out there and flowing into the the state and local governments. What's the range of options for how it could be spent? I mean, it's it's a wide range. It's anything from paying for treatments to overdoses to paying for employment programs and education. Uh, And there's there's pretty wide latitude for how this money can be spent. That is Sharon Turlup of The Wall Street Journal sharing some of her reporting over this $10 billion settlement uh, that has just been announced today. Sharon Turlup, thank you. Thank you. President Biden will deliver a speech tonight sounding the alarm about internal threats to American democracy. It's his second major speech on this theme. The first one was two months ago. Now the midterm elections are less than a week away, and NPR White House correspondent Tamara Keith joins us from the White House with a preview. Hey, Tam. Hello. So, Tam, the president will be speaking with the U.S. Capitol as a backdrop. Why there and why now? The balance of power in Congress is on the line in the midterm, so that's certainly part of it. But that building was also the site of the January 6th attack. Lawmakers were finalizing the results of the 2020 election when protesters who believed Donald Trump's lies about the election overran the building and tried to stop them. Um, And there are people who still don't accept that Biden won. Some of those people are running for office. Others are running elections at the local level and running to take jobs that would have them directly overseeing the voting process. At the same time, there's also been a jump in threats of political violence, and we saw the alarming outcome of that last week when a man broke into Speaker Nancy Pelosi's house and attacked her husband with a hammer. Um, Republican pollster Christine Matthews says that President Biden is trying to tie all of this together and get the broader public to care about threats to democracy. I think President Biden is trying to create a river catches on fire moment. And I don't think the American public is there yet. She is referring to the fire on the Cuyahoga River in Cleveland in 1969. At that time, some people were worried about pollution before the river caught on fire, uh, but it wasn't front of mind for most until that happened. And, And she says it's the same with concerns about democratic erosion in the U.S. Certainly Democrats But not all Democrats who are paying attention, they feel like democracy is at that point, but I don't think the public is there. And so President Biden with tonight's speech is trying to raise those stakes. And Tam, voting season is well underway. Millions of people have already voted early. Many more will cast ballots next Tuesday. Who is President Biden trying to reach with this message? Well, lately, the president has been spending more time talking about the economy, Social Security, Medicare than these issues. But the new NPR PBS NewsHour Marist poll out today indicates threats to democracy is among the leading issues for voters, especially Democratic voters. Uh, And our poll found that Democratic voters aren't as enthusiastic as Republicans at this time. Um, Patrick Ruffini is a partner at the polling firm Echelon Insights. He says his team tested Biden's first message on democracy with voters voters back after he gave that speech at the start of September. And he said at that time, people cared more about issues like abortion. Um, He said that the democracy message really did not resonate with Republicans or independents. This to me feels like a sign that the White House does not think the Democratic base is fully enthusiastic about next Tuesday. 
this could be something they're seeing in the early voting data. Um, but it did surprise me to see the president returning to this well. And Tam, big question here and not a whole lot of time to answer it, but is President Biden the right messenger here? It's tough. Um, There are very real concerns about political violence, whether candidates will accept the results of the election next week. But Biden is a political figure delivering a political speech. Um, And at this moment in American politics, it's really hard to think of any leader who could break through the polarization. NPR White House correspondent Tamara Keith, thank you. You're welcome. Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Since the beginning of war in Ukraine, Russia has used Europe's dependence on Russian oil and natural gas as a weapon. As NPR's Jackie Northam reports, there is concern that this weaponization of energy is spreading to the rest of the world. Russian President Vladimir Putin was manipulating oil and natural gas exports to Europe long before the first shot was fired in Ukraine, usually restricting supplies in order to get what he wanted. In September, Putin went all out, shutting off the flow of gas through a key pipeline to Europe. Robert McNally is president of the Rapidan Energy Group. So the real first shot, if you will, the Lexington and Concord of this thing, is when, is when Russia just stopped exporting through Nord Stream 1 to Germany. That's over half of Germany's gas. The rest of Europe also depended on Russia for about 40% of its natural gas needs. Stopping those supplies was in retaliation for sanctions against Russia and Europe's support of Ukraine. And it's inflicted a lot of pain, says Andrew Lepau, president of the consulting firm Lepau Oil Associates. Natural gas prices in Europe are nearly eight to ten times that in the United States, and that has forced the closure of a variety of industries, including fertilizer, aluminum, steel, zinc. And you can see it's causing economic damage, especially in Germany. But what happens in Europe doesn't stay in Europe. Not when you're talking about oil and gas, commodities used and traded globally. That's sparking concern about the energy war widening, says Olga Hakova with the Global Energy Center at the Atlantic Council. I would say it's already a global energy conflict because of the consequences of the supply crunch that Putin has intentionally created. After Russia cut it off, Europe has scrambled to find new sources of natural gas, setting off bidding wars between countries, says Rachel Ziemba, an energy specialist with the Center for a New American Security. Every spare cargo and even non-spare cargo of LNG on the market in the last six months has basically gone to Europe. The other thing, of course, that's worrisome is as all these more developed economies scramble for gas, uh, poorer countries can't access it, can't pay the price. The plight of the developed world has deepened by Europe, the U.S. and allies coming up with their own strategy to limit Russian oil in the market. The EU will ban all oil imports from Russia in early December. 
Ziemba says the G7 has also signed on to a U.S.-backed plan to put a price cap on Russian oil to try to limit the revenue the Kremlin is pulling in. So this is an environment where there are tools being used on both sides um, and that the net result is a lot of disruption and complications. Last month, OPEC Plus appeared to enter the fray and slashed oil outputs, despite pleas from the Biden administration. Lower production levels mean higher revenues for members of the cartel, including Russia. The Biden administration publicly called out OPEC Plus, saying it was siding with Russia. Saudi Arabia hotly denied that. The Atlantic Council's Hakova again. They're claiming that this is a purely economical decision, but we don't live in times where you can just dissect and live in silos where you just have energy over here and economics and geopolitics and brutalities, you know, happening and war crimes over here. Everything is so closely tied together and every action has consequences, right? Consequences not just for Europe and Ukraine, but also the developing world as this energy war continues. Jackie Northam, NPR News, Washington. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 4.48 and ahead on All Things Considered, you'll hear about a Brazilian photographer documenting the Amazon with images of the forest and indigenous leaders. That and much more coming up on All Things Considered. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the University of New England in Maine, with a mission to support healthy people, healthy communities, and a healthy planet. UNE.edu. You are part of the WBUR community, and that's why you're invited to our next virtual community advisory board meeting. It's Wednesday, November 16th, from 4 to 6.30 p.m., for details, go to wbur.org slash open meetings. It's 65 degrees in Boston, overnight lows in the mid-40s, a sunny Thursday, tomorrow's highs in the mid-60s, and on Friday, sunshine with highs in the upper 60s. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Delta Dental of Massachusetts, passionate about improving oral health across the state and reminding you that a healthy smile is a powerful thing. Visiting your dentist and taking care of your mouth could help protect your heart health and much more. Discover the connection between oral and overall health at expressyourhealthma.org. And the Chestnut Hill School, leading the way in elementary education since 1860. Grow today, transform tomorrow on the web at tchs.org. The poet Franny Choi finds comfort in a broken world because life goes on despite one catastrophe after another. By the time the apocalypse began, the world had already ended. It ended every day for a century or two. Franny Choi's new collection, The World Keeps Ending and the World Goes On. Tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Tomorrow morning at 5 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. Germany's Chancellor Olaf Scholz is headed to China this week. He'll be the first Western leader to sit down with President Xi Jinping in over two years. Scholz is under pressure to rethink Berlin's relationship with Beijing, as Esme Nicholson reports from Hamburg. Home to one of Europe's largest ports, Hamburg has excelled at trade since the Middle Ages. Back then, it clubbed together with other port cities in the region, and together they dominated commerce. 
Now the city's port is joining forces with Costco. The Chinese shipping giant is about to buy a stake in a container terminal here. Jörg Helmand, a Hamburg native waiting to board a harbour ferry, doubts there's anything mutually beneficial about this alliance. Letting China invest in a port here is the last thing we should be doing, considering the state of the world right now. Sure, Schultz is trying to keep both the German industry and Beijing happy, but he has to strike a balance. Striking a blow instead, Schultz pushed the Costco deal through his cabinet last week, despite opposition from six key ministries. The Chancellor addressed their concerns about selling off critical infrastructure by reducing Costco's stake from 35% to 24.9%. But the deal still has little political support, even though China has been Germany's largest trading partner for more than half a decade. Germany's lawmakers are afraid of making the same mistakes with Beijing that they made with Moscow. Domestic intelligence chief Thomas Heidenweg says this is exactly the issue. If Russia is the storm, China is climate change. And we need to prepare for this. The timing of the Hamburg-Costco deal has also raised eyebrows. The optics are not great. It appears that Schultz, shortly before heading to Beijing, is offering the Chinese government a gift. Noah Barkin is an analyst with Rhodium Group. He says this apparent offering undermines previous policy pledges on China. Schultz's government came in promising a new tougher stance, and Schultz is sending signals in the opposite direction. So there are big questions abroad about where Germany really stands on China. None more so than in Washington, where ties with China have fractured over the last few years. Marcel Fratscher, president of the German Economic Research Institute, says deals like the one with Costco also pose a risk to the rest of Europe. Our neighbours have accused Germany of pursuing a very mercantilist approach with uh, the short-term economic gain being top priority. I think that is a fair criticism. Federal Foreign Minister Annalena Baerbock agrees. It's vital that we never again make ourselves so existentially dependent on a country that doesn't share our values. If China continues to become more authoritarian, then our policy and economic relations must change. But with a recession looming, German industry has no intention of cutting ties with their largest market. Instead, a delegation of industry bosses is accompanying Scholz to Beijing. One of them is from the chemicals giant BASF, which is shifting production to China because of high energy costs in Europe. Noah Barkin says doubling down is unwise. There is a risk of a conflict in the Taiwan Strait. If that were to happen, German firms with a heavy presence in China would be incredibly vulnerable. Barkin suggests that German companies rebalance their global footprints and, over the coming years, start to reduce their industrial economic reliance on China. For NPR News, I'm Esme Nicholson in Hamburg. The photographer Sebastio Salgado has been documenting the Amazon in his native Brazil for decades. His new exhibition of photos of the rainforest now hangs at the California Science Center in Los Angeles. NPR's Mandalay Del Barco reports on the North American premiere. In two large gallery spaces, you hear a soundscape from the Amazon rainforest. Birds, monkeys, insects, frogs, and people's voices mixed into music composed for the exhibition by French musician Jean-Michel Jarret. 
the sound highlights Sebastião Salgado's photos, more than 200 large-scale black and white images that almost seem backlit. You use all natural light. Only natural light. I don't know how to use artificial light. He's captured lush tropical trees, dramatic clouds, the sinuous river, as well as the biodiversity of the jungle. It's a beautiful exhibit. The images are enchanting. Jeffrey Rudolph is the president and CEO of the California Science Center, which is hosting the exhibition Amazonia. You learn a lot about the forest, unexpected things about the Amazon, the mountains in the Amazon, the flying rivers. The Amazon is a unique system in which it creates its own rain. In some of the photos, you can see huge rain clouds, immense waterfalls, and misty mountain peaks. Salgado says he flew with the Brazilian military over some of the most inaccessible areas to capture them with his camera. Amazonia is as the paradise. The light is amazing. The clouds are amazing. The people are amazing. The 78-year-old photographer lives in Paris and has traveled to more than 130 countries, capturing images of genocide, starvation, war, and natural disasters. But he always returned to Brazil, where he grew up in another rainforest along the Atlantic. For years, he and his wife Lelia worked to restore a portion of the Atlantic forest that had been damaged. They also created a nature reserve and an institute for reforestation, conservation, and environmental education. Salgado has made more than 58 trips to Amazonia, where he's lived with some of the hundred tribes protected by Brazil's National Indian Foundation. These Indians in the forest, they are integrated with the water, with the soil, with the forest, with the animals. Salgado says they would often arrive surrounded by birds and other animals. He says he slept in hammocks next to them and spoke through interpreters. They were never interested by my cameras, by my satellite phone. No interest. They were very interested by my knife, because my knife has utility for them. Once one guy asked him, Sebastian, give me your knife when you go. Salgado set up an outdoor studio, draping large black backdrops to shoot portraits. For example, women in headdresses and elaborate face paint stare into his camera. Salgado says his Amazonia exhibition is tied to the indigenous and environmental movements in Brazil. It includes videos of tribal leaders talking about the destruction of the rainforest. They know that they are in, in danger to disappear, that the government in Brazil, Bolsonaro government, is destroying the forest in very high speed, and they are desperate to protect the land, and they are using this show to speak about their problem. Like them, Salgado blames the outgoing Brazilian government for further endangering and eroding the Amazon. They are real bandits. What they are doing, not only in Amazon, but elsewhere in Brazil, is a disaster. The photographer had longed for a new president, and just days ago, Brazilians elected leftist leader Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva. Salgado also says he hopes that in 50 years, his exhibition Amazonia is not a documentation of a lost forest, a lost indigenous people, a lost world. Mandali del Barco, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their client's best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. 
and from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at AlignProbiotics.com. And from Culligan Water, since 1936, a local Culligan specialist can provide in-home water tests and custom recommendations to treat the unique attributes of a home's water. More at Culligan.com. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. I'm WBUR arts and culture reporter Cristela Guerra, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Jurors have been hearing more testimony in the trial of the Oath Keepers founder and four others charged with seditious conspiracy on the January 6th insurrection. It is Wednesday, November 2nd. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon. I'm Sharon Brody in for Lisa Mullins. Planned Parenthood has a new RV that it plans to use in Southern Illinois. Mobile clinics offer a new way to provide abortion care in regions with limited access. We can go wherever the need is greatest. So that means less traveling for our patients. It means that we can quickly adapt to the courts, uh, to state legislatures. The Federal Reserve Chair discusses the central bank's latest effort to fight inflation. Also, you'll get the latest on a previously unreleased 47-year-old song about inflation. It's 5.01. First, this news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. President Biden is set to deliver a primetime speech in Washington tonight. NPR's Windsor Johnson reports Biden's expected to focus his remarks on threats to democracy in an address to the Democratic National Committee. President Biden is expected to address the ongoing threats to democracy, including the January 6th insurrection and most recently the violent attack on the husband of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. White House senior advisor Anita Dunn says the president will put it straight to the American people. He will be very clear tonight that there he is speaking to people who don't agree with him on any issues, who don't agree on his agenda, but who, you know, we really can unite behind this idea, this fundamental value of democracy. The Democratic National Committee says Biden will also address the threat of election deniers and those who seek to undermine faith in voting and democracy. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. Russia says it will resume its participation in an international agreement to move Ukraine's grain through the Black Sea. As NPR's Nathan Rod explains, it had pulled out of the deal a few days ago after an alleged Ukrainian attack. The United Nations brokered deal, safe passage for cargo ships to traverse Russia's Black Sea blockade of Ukraine's ports, has allowed more than 10 million tons of grain and other food products to make their way from Ukraine to countries in the Middle East and Africa. Russia abruptly canceled its participation in the deal over the weekend, though, following an attack on Russian warships off of the Crimean Peninsula. Grain ships continued to move even after Russia's withdrawal. It's not entirely clear why Russia has decided so quickly to resume its participation in the agreement. 
Nathan Rapp, NPR News, Kiev. Twitter's new owner says the social media platform will begin charging for premium services like verification. NPR's Raquel Maria Dillon has more on Elon Musk's attempts to lead Twitter to profitability. Elon Musk says Twitter users will be able to pay $8 a month for account verification. The coveted checkmark means Twitter has checked that the account holder is who they say they are. Musk tweeted that paid users would get priority in reply chains and searches. Previously, only people most likely to be targeted by impersonators like celebrities, politicians, reporters could get verified. Musk also says Twitter will not reinstate any accounts that had violated the platform's rules until the company works out a process, which will take at least a few more weeks. He also changed his title on his profile to Twitter Complaint Hotline Operator. Raquel Maria Dillon, NPR News, San Francisco. The Federal Reserve wrapped up a two-day meeting in Washington, raising interest rates by three-quarters of a percent. Reaction on Wall Street, negative. The Dow dropped 505 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Vice President Kamala Harris is in Boston this afternoon. Last hour, she spoke at a union hall in Dorchester to highlight how she says the administration's economic policies are helping families. The vice president says Massachusetts is getting $300 million to help families improve energy efficiency in their homes. And that means providing rebates of more than $800 per household to help families purchase and install, for example, a new electric stove, and providing up to $1,600 per household to help families install new insulation. At this hour in Roxbury, Harris is set to attend a campaign rally for Democratic candidates for statewide office, including gubernatorial contender Maura Healey. The latest survey of the state's skilled nursing facilities shows a historically large shortage of workers to care for patients. WBUR's Dave Feniff reports. The survey by the Massachusetts Senior Care Association shows there are 6,900 openings for nurses and nursing assistants. Susan Mazorski is vice president of workforce development for the association. She says it has developed a brief training program to help fill the gap. It's online. It allows nursing facilities to bring new caregivers in as a resident care assistant. And then that individual can work within that role for four months. Mazorski says that, that approach gives new workers more time to get their certification. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Dave Fanef. It appears Massachusetts taxpayers will not get any additional tax relief this year beyond the surplus revenue refund checks that the state's sending out over the next several weeks. Today, leaders in the Massachusetts House and Senate announced they will wait until next year to act on proposals for one-time tax rebates and permanent tax reforms. Those reforms would have reduced the estate tax and given breaks to seniors, renters, and caregivers. Meanwhile, the legislative leaders say they will move forward with an economic development bill that would provide funding for housing, hospitals, and public transit. In sports, tonight the Celtics face the Cavs in Cleveland. Lows in the mid-40s overnight in Boston. Tomorrow, a sunny Thursday. Highs in the mid-60s. This is WBUR. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Little Passports, designed to help children discover the world with hands-on activity kits delivered monthly for ages 3 and up. Learn more at littlepassports.com slash NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. 
Interest rates are going higher as the Federal Reserve continues its crackdown on runaway inflation. Today, the central bank ordered another supersized increase in interest rates, and that is likely to mean higher borrowing costs for anyone getting a car loan, a home mortgage, or even just carrying a balance on their credit card. NPR's Scott Horsley has been following the Fed's action today, and now he's here in the studio. Hi, Scott. Hi, Juana. So, Scott, interest rates have been rising at the fastest pace in decades. Where do they go from here? That is the trillion-dollar question. Rates have already gone up a lot from where they started last spring, which was next to zero. Uh, The Fed's benchmark interest rate is now close to 4%, and it's likely to go higher. Uh, The central bank has moved very aggressively, raising rates by three-quarters of a percentage point at each of its last four meetings, including today's. Now, Fed Chairman Jerome Powell did tell reporters this afternoon that at some point it will be appropriate to slow down and take stock. That time is coming, and it may come as soon as the next meeting or the one after that. So markets now think the Fed may go with a smaller rate increase at its December meeting. But Powell cautioned no decision's been made yet, and there's no guarantee. Okay, and so these higher rates, have they had much of an impact on inflation? Not much. Uh, Inflation has come down a little bit from its peak early in the summer, but prices are still climbing three or four times faster than the Fed's 2% inflation target, uh, depending on which yardstick you use. Now, inflation has been both higher and more stubborn than a lot of the Fed's own forecasters expected. And as a result, Powell says, interest rates may ultimately have to go even higher than we'd thought to curb inflation. Uh, Powell cautioned, even if the Fed moves to uh, slow the pace of rate increases, that doesn't mean rates are about to level off. And it certainly doesn't mean interest rates are coming down anytime soon. We know that we need to use our tools to get inflation under control. The world's not going to be better off if we fail to do that. Scott, how are these higher borrowing costs affecting the economy? They are starting to uh, take a bite out of the most sensitive parts of the economy. Uh, You can especially see that in the housing market. Of course, mortgage rates are now upwards of 7%. And as a result, we've seen a sharp slowdown in both existing home sales and new home construction. Manufacturing is also feeling a slowdown. So far, consumer spending has held up pretty well. Uh, One reason for that is the extra savings that a lot of people built up early in the pandemic have allowed them to keep spending, even though prices are up and interest rates are high. Uh, Some lawmakers are warning that the Fed's crackdown could tip the economy into recession and drive millions of people out of work. But Powell says the Fed has a responsibility to get prices under control. Otherwise, he says, in the long run, the economy doesn't work for anybody. No one knows whether there's going to be a recession or not. And uh, if so, how how bad that recession would be. You know, our job is to restore price stability so that we can have a strong labor market that benefits all over time. So sounds like the Fed is really sticking with its hard line. How did the stock market react today? You know, the market was all over the map today. Uh, Initially, uh, stocks were up with news that uh, the Fed might slow the pace of rate increases, but they ultimately fell on the prospect that interest rates will end up higher than maybe had been expected. Uh, The Dow Jones Industrial Average ended down more than 500 points today, or 1.5%. The broader S&P 500 index was down more than 2.5%. NPR's Scott Horsley, thank you as always. You're welcome. 
In some parts of the country where abortions are increasingly difficult to access, providers are turning to mobile clinics. This week, a Planned Parenthood affiliate in the Midwest received a new RV that it plans to take on the road, providing abortion pills and other services across southern Illinois. A few reporters were invited to take a look, and Pierre Sarah McCammon was among them and filed this report from southern Illinois just across the border from Missouri. Laquetta Cooper is standing in front of a big blue RV, parked in an industrial lot in southern Illinois. It looks a lot like any other RV out on the road, except for the lettering on the side that reads Mobile Health Clinic. Cooper, the healthcare operations director for Planned Parenthood in the region, says this new vehicle soon will be meeting up with patients from all over the area to deliver abortion pills. Um, the biggest needs that we are seeing is the fact that they have to travel so far to get the care that they need. This will be helpful so that they don't have to travel three to five hours trying to get um, the abortion care that they need. After the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade in June, neighboring Missouri quickly enacted its abortion ban. Most of Illinois' other neighboring states have either implemented abortion bans or could soon, depending on the outcome of court battles. Cooper says Planned Parenthood Southern Illinois Clinic near East St. Louis is one of few places in the region to get an abortion now. Because of that, we've seen a huge uptake quicker than we thought we were going to see um, in the last few months. Planned Parenthood's new mobile clinic is one of just a few like it nationwide. This summer, the nonprofit organization Just the Pill quietly began offering abortion pills out of a mobile unit in Colorado. The group's medical director, Dr. Julie Amen, says these moving clinics are part of what she describes as the next iteration of abortion care in regions with limited access. We can go wherever the need is greatest. So that means less traveling for our patients. It means that we can quickly adapt to the courts, uh, to state legislatures and the market. With Roe v. Wade overturned, groups opposed to abortion rights are urging midterm voters to choose candidates who will move to restrict it in their states. And some, like Reagan Barklage, National Field Director for Students for Life of America, want lawmakers to try to pass legislation that makes crossing state lines for abortion difficult or impossible. So I know there's legislators that are working on bills that would prevent women from crossing state lines, and they're trying to come up with different strategies to work on that, and also um, ways that they can prevent women from buying them online. Barglage also says she worries about the safety of people taking abortion pills at home or a hotel. But Dr. Amon notes that medication abortion was approved by the FDA more than 20 years ago and says her mobile patients receive the same follow-up care as those who come to a traditional clinic. Mobile clinics will operate in the same complex legal landscape as other abortion providers, says Carol Jaffe, a sociologist at the University of California, San Francisco, who specializes in reproductive health. Abortion health care is like no other branch of health care. Any move that is made to increase abortion access will be met by those opposed to abortion to try to impede it in various ways. Jaffe also points to security concerns, which may be heightened for mobile units. At Just the Pill, Dr. Eamon says they've installed bulletproofing in their vehicles as a precaution and hired security personnel. Planned Parenthood says it's developing similar protocols for its new unit, which will operate within Illinois state lines where abortion is legal. Inside, there are examination tables and ultrasound machines in two small exam rooms. Oh, this is big in here. This one's bigger. 
Dr. Colleen McNicholas, Planned Parenthood's chief medical officer for the St. Louis region and southwest Missouri, saw it for the first time yesterday. McNicholas says she thinks the mobile clinic could be replicated in other parts of the country where neighboring states restrict abortion. And this unit really truly is for us, I think, a demonstration of an act of defiance. Um, we're here and we're going to be here. Um, and we're going to continue to show up for people who need us. Planned Parenthood's mobile clinic will start offering abortion pills later this year and surgical procedures sometime next year. Meanwhile, Just the Pill is making plans to open at least two more such vehicles and looking at expanding into Illinois and Minnesota. Sarah McCammon, NPR News, St. Clair County, Illinois. Food writer Julie Powell died last week. She was best known as the creator of the Julie Julia Project, an early 2000s blog on Salon.com. It followed Powell's mission to cook every dish in Julia Child's 1961 cookbook classic, Mastering the Art of French Cooking, Volume 1. She set herself the goal of doing it all in one year while working a full-time job. On August 25th, 2003, she finished her final recipe, kidneys in a red wine sauce with beef marrow. And the next day, she spoke with NPR. It's been an interesting experience. And yes, there has been some hysteria involved now and again. Um, it wouldn't be nearly as entertaining if there wasn't. Um, hmm. But it's been quite a ride. Powell took on the project as a way to regain control of her life as she approached her 30s and struggled with a dead-end office job. She told NPR it was partly an act of desperation, but also she saw Mastering the Art of French Cooking as one of the best textbooks around for an enthusiastic amateur cook. I enormously respect Julia, uh, Julia Child. I, I find her to be a unique and incredible larger-than-life woman who has made us as Americans able to eat as we eat today. And Alice Waters and Martha Stewart and everyone in between has Julia to thank for their success. And so to me, this is a sort of homage to, to all that she's done. Powell went on to adapt her blog into a New York Times bestseller, Julie and Julia, 365 Days, 524 Recipes, One Tiny Apartment Kitchen. She had a new level of stardom when director Nora Ephron adapted Julie and Julia into a blockbuster film. It was partially based on Powell's book. Yesterday was Tuesday, August 13th, 2002. Day one. 364 days to go. But the film was also adapted from Julia Child's autobiography, My Life in France, which follows Child's life in mid-century Paris. I'm Julia Child. Bon appétit. Amy Adams played Julie Powell in the movie, and that was Meryl Streep as a child, a performance that later earned Streep an Academy Award nomination. And in 2009, the famous Le Cordon Bleu cooking school, the same school Julia Child graduated from in 1951, awarded Powell an honorary degree. Julie Powell stuck with food for her second memoir, Cleaving a Story of Marriage, Meat, and Obsession. Her stories of extramarital affairs and an apprenticeship with a butcher did not exactly lend themselves to the Nora Ephron rom-com treatment, and the book was not as well received as her first. Julie Powell died at her home in Olive Bridge, New York on October 26th. She was 49 years old. It's All Things Considered from NPR News.
This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 518 and ahead on all things considered anti-vaccine candidates on the ballot in the midterms. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Welland Montessori School, a Boston parent's family favorite. Toddler to grade eight. Inspire, challenge, empower. Open house November 6th. Register at Welland.org. In business news, Somerville-based climate tech startup incubator Greentown Labs is launching an initiative in Houston designed to create student-driven entrepreneurship. It's partnering with MIT and universities in Texas with the goal of supporting ideas to create affordable, reliable, and environmentally sustainable energy. On Wall Street, the Dow dropped 505 points today to close at 32,147. The Nasdaq closed down 366 points at 10,524. The S&P 500 closed down 2.5%. That's 96 points to end the day at 37.59. This is WBUR. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by H&H, the Handel and Haydn Society, with Handel's Messiah and its Hallelujah Chorus, November 25th through 27th at Symphony Hall, handelandhaydn.org. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at wbur.org cars. With so much at stake in this year's midterm elections, you do not want to fall behind. WBUR and NPR are keeping you informed every step of the way. Keep listening here for the midterm updates you need. In the forecast for the Boston area, overnight lows in the mid-40s. Tomorrow, a sunny Thursday with highs in the mid-60s. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Amazon Business. From small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business works to help simplify the supplies buying process. Learn more at amazonbusiness.com. And from Fidelity Wealth Management, working to help investors keep more of what they earn with tax-efficient strategies at fidelity.com wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSE. And from the Lemelson Foundation. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Days after the January 6th Capitol attack, Oath Keepers founder Stuart Rhodes tried to get a message to then-President Trump. That revelation emerged today in testimony in the most important January 6th trial to date. That is the seditious conspiracy case against Rhodes and four other members of his far-right group. NPR Justice correspondent Ryan Lucas is covering the trial. He joins us from the courthouse. Hello, Ryan. Hello there. So the government has been giving its side of the case for a month or so now. They are Mm -hmm. close to resting, but they had some big testimony today. What can you tell us? Well, the jury heard from a witness named Jason Alpers. He's a former military special operations guy who now does a software development in Texas. And he said that he met with Rhodes and a few other Oath Keepers in a Dallas area parking lot just days after the Capitol attack. Rhodes wanted to get a message to then President Trump, which is something Alpers says he could do indirectly. Now, Alpers secretly recorded this parking lot meeting. The government played clips of it for the jury. Uh, And at the meeting, Rhodes typed out on Alpers' cell phone a message for Trump. And jurors saw screenshots of that message. And in that message, Rhodes calls on Trump to invoke the Insurrection Act to remain in power. Rhodes says that if Trump doesn't do so, Biden would jail Trump 
and his family, and he would kill them. He also says Americans would, quote, die in combat on U.S. soil, fighting against traitors who Trump handed over power to. Now, Alper says Rhodes was asking for civil war in America. Alper said he did not agree with Rhodes, so he didn't pass this message along to Trump. Instead, he gave it and the recording of the meeting to the FBI. Hey, help me with the timeline here. This meeting we said was after January 6th. How does this fit into the government's case? Well, Rhodes and his co-defendants are accused of conspiring to try to prevent, with the use of force if necessary, Biden from taking office. And the government says that conspiracy continued after January 6th in the Capitol attack. This recording helps bolster their case. And it also goes to what the purpose of the alleged conspiracy was, which was to keep Biden from, from taking power. All right. Okay. Uh, what else have we heard from the government as they have laid out their case over the past few weeks? Well, jurors have seen a lot of signal messages, Facebook messages from the defendants, uh, some about the 2020 election and how they felt that Trump had actually won, how they thought that Biden would be an illegitimate president, uh, and how they needed to fight to keep Trump in office. The jury saw messages Rhodes sent in which he warns of a quote-unquote bloody and desperate fight if Biden's in the White House. Another defendant, Thomas Caldwell, talked about killing politicians. So there was a lot of inflammatory, bombastic talk that goes to the defendant's state of mind. And I'll just jump in. There was a lot of talk, but there, they also took action. That, that was clear as well? That's right. That's right. The jury saw evidence of how the defendants recruited and trained and planned to come to Washington, D.C. for January 6th, how they stashed guns at a hotel in Virginia for a quick reaction force to ferry weapons, the government says, into D.C. if necessary. And ultimately, of course, Oath Keepers, including three of the defendants here on trial, dressed in tactical gear and forced their way into the Capitol on January 6th. The jury's also heard from co from cooperating witnesses, from Oath Keepers who, who also took part in the Capitol attack. Mm -hmm. What did they have to say? That's right. There were two of them. Uh, one of the cooperators who testified was a Florida Oath Keeper named Graydon Young. And he told the jury that the decision to storm the Capitol was spontaneous, but he also said he believed there was an implicit understanding among Oath Keepers who were in those group chats with Rhodes about forcefully opposing Biden from taking office. He said that they were going to disrupt Congress, and the riot presented an opportunity to do something. All right. A sampling there of what the government has laid out for its case. And uh, they rest the case tomorrow. The defense is up next. And Piers Ryan Lucas at the courthouse. Thanks so much. Thank you. As the midterms approach, candidates can't seem to stay away from the topic of vaccines. The pandemic has made them into a talking point on the political right. NPR's Jeff Brumfield has a look at what that could mean for public health. In late October, the Republican candidate for governor of Minnesota posted a video he knew was going to be controversial. I've been called extreme, and perhaps this Facebook video will provide fodder for more people to call me extreme. The candidate, Scott Jensen, is a local physician who pushed medical misinformation throughout the pandemic. He has said that hospitals distorted the number of COVID deaths, and he's repeatedly called into question the safety of vaccines. I think in terms of safety, the question's still out there. When COVID was raging, Jensen became a popular voice within the anti-vaccine movement. And when Jensen entered the Republican primary for governor, they became a vital part of his voting base. The thing about anti-vaccine forces is that they're one thing. They're anti-vaccine and no other issues matter. 
Karen Ernst is director of Voices for Vaccines, a Minnesota nonprofit that advocates for inoculation. Anti-vaccine proponents used to exist in both Republican and Democratic circles, but the pandemic saw them shift definitively to the political right. It was there that they found allies fighting lockdowns and masks. Ernst says that Jensen's commitment to anti-vaccine ideas helped mobilize this segment of the Republican Party. Being anti-vaccine definitely helped Scott Jensen in the primaries. As the general election approaches, though, it's less clear whether support from the anti-vaccine crowd can translate into political success. The vast majority of Americans still believe children should be vaccinated, and Jensen's opponent, Democrat Tim Walls, has won an endorsement from a large Minnesota doctors group, in part because he supports vaccination. Ernst says Jensen might be trying to soften his anti-vaccine image in the run-up to the election. He bailed on a major anti-vaccine rally in October. He canceled at the last minute saying that he had a family wedding to attend, but then I guess he was seen at a Minnesota Gophers football game. So there is <laughs> all sorts of hubbub about that. But there are other ways to appeal to the anti-vaccine movement without openly opposing vaccination. And perhaps no candidate is doing it better than Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. In a video recently posted to Twitter, DeSantis emphatically promised that he would not require children to get COVID vaccines. As long as I'm around and as long as I'm kicking and screaming, uh, there will be no COVID shot mandates for your kids. That is your decision. At the same time, he was careful to avoid openly questioning vaccine safety. We can get into some of the potential side effects. You don't even really need to do that. DeSantis has also installed a doctor closely tied to the anti-vaccine movement as Florida's Surgeon General. Lisa Gwynn is a Florida pediatrician. She says DeSantis may not directly say that he thinks vaccines are dangerous, but his language definitely speaks to the anti-vaccine movement. Who wants the jab? You know, give the kids a jab. You're just talking like vaccines are back. Gwim believes that the rhetoric is carefully calibrated to energize the anti-vaccine elements of the Republican base without appearing to question vaccines themselves. It's all calculated. Everything's very calculated. And it appears to be working. DeSantis has won endorsement from Stand for Health Freedom, a political group staffed with several prominent anti-vaccine advocates. They did not respond to NPR's request for an interview. For now, much of the rhetoric is focused on COVID vaccines, but there's been a recent surge in proposed legislation to weaken childhood vaccine requirements in many states. Gwyn worries that politicking could soon erase decades of work to protect children against vaccine-preventable diseases. Jeff Brumfield, NPR News. It's NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 529, and coming up on All Things Considered, you'll get the latest on an Ethiopian ceasefire. You'll also take a look at the inspection of a ship transporting Ukraine's grain supply. That and more ahead on All Things Considered. Make informed choices on ballot questions and other voting decisions with the WBUR Voter Guide. The answers and explanations you need are at wbur.org slash voter guide.
It's 65 degrees in Boston, lows in the mid-40s overnight, and tomorrow, sunny skies, highs in the mid-60s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Sullivan Tire and Auto Service. Family-owned and operated, offering brand-name tires and complete auto service for more than 67 years. More at SullivanTire.com. Joe Caruso, owner of the Music Emporium, a WBUR underwriter. People come up to me and thank me for supporting WBUR, something that they believe in. Those are the people we want to reach, people that not only support and believe in what BUR does, but believe in what businesses that support BUR stand for. Explore how you can become a WBUR underwriter at WBUR.org sponsorship. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. The Federal Reserve ordered another big interest rate hike today as it continues to aggressively crack down on inflation. The central bank boosted its benchmark rate by another three quarters of a percent after inflation in October was three or four times higher than the Fed would like. Chairman Jerome Powell hinted the Fed could start to slow the pace of the large rate hikes, but uncertainty remains. It will become appropriate to slow the pace of increases as we approach the level of interest rates that will be sufficiently restrictive to bring inflation down to our 2% goal. There is significant uncertainty around that level of interest rates. Even so, we still have some ways to go. And incoming data since our last meeting suggests that the ultimate level of interest rates will be higher than previously expected. Higher interest rates are already making it more expensive to borrow money to buy a new car, to carry a balance on your credit card, even to buy a home. North Korea is secretly supplying artillery shells to Russia to aid its war in Ukraine. NPR's Tamara Keith reports this comes as Russia's war effort is dragging on far longer than initially expected. National Security Council spokesman John Kirby had previously warned that Russia had been trying to acquire weapons from North Korea. Now he says it is happening. We have information that indicates they're covertly supplying it, trying to funnel them through third countries. And, uh, and, uh, and we felt it was important for, uh, for us to call that out. Officials have not provided specific evidence, but Kirby says a significant number of artillery shells are involved. He adds the U.S. does not expect that ammunition would change the course of the war on the ground. It allows the Russians just that much more capability to kill, to murder. Uh, and to destroy. Kirby said the U.S. is monitoring to see whether the weapons are received by Russia. Tamara Keith, NPR News. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. On Beacon Hill, legislative leaders say they've finally reached agreement on a $3.7 billion economic development bill that has been stalled since the end of July. WBUR's Steve Brown has details. The bill got hung up when at the last minute it was learned the state needed to return close to $3 billion in surplus revenue to taxpayers. Legislative leaders indicated the uncertainty over how much money was to be returned kept them from finalizing the package. In a joint statement, Speaker Ron Mariano and Senate President Karen Spilka said today's agreement provides relief for rising energy costs, boosts housing production, and provides immediate assistance to the MBTA. The agreement does not contain additional tax cuts, as had originally been included. The leaders left the door open to revisiting additional tax cuts in the next legislative session. It's not known exactly when the full legislature will vote to accept today's agreement. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Steve Brown. 
The state's highest court is considering whether limits can be placed on public comments during government meetings. The case stems from rules that the town of Southboro imposed after a resident said a select board member was, quote, being a Hitler. A lower court ruled the prohibition on rude, personal, or slanderous remarks is constitutional. The plaintiff in the case wants the Supreme Judicial Court to strike down the policy, saying it suppresses her right to free speech. July 8th will now be celebrated as Massachusetts Emancipation Day, or Quack Walker Day. Governor Baker signed the bill into law yesterday. Quack Walker was born into slavery in Massachusetts in 1753 and self-emancipated when he was 28. As punishment for that, he was brutally beaten by his former enslaver. Walker took his emancipation case to court and won his freedom. Walker's legal victory became the precedent that led to the Massachusetts abolition of slavery. It's 534. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Trust, a private bank offering a full suite of custom financial solutions tailored to its clients. Their team provides private banking, wealth management, and commercial and innovation banking designed to power any ambition. You can visit their offices or connect online at cambridgetrust.com slash way to wealth. It's 59 degrees in Boston, lows overnight dropping to the mid-40s. A sunny Thursday, tomorrow's highs in the mid-60s. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. And from BetterHelp. Connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and relationships. 25,000 therapists are available through BetterHelp using a computer or smartphone. BetterHelp.com public. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. After two years of brutal conflict, Ethiopia's federal government and forces from the northern region of Tigray have reached a deal for a permanent cessation of hostilities. Ethiopia's civil war is responsible for the deaths of hundreds of thousands of people, millions more have been displaced, and over 90% of people in Tigray need food aid, according to the World Health Organization. For more details, we're joined by journalist Kate Bartlett, who is in South Africa. Hi, Kate. Hello. So, Kate, this deal, could it possibly be the end to one of the world's most brutal conflicts? Well, observers certainly hope so. The details of the agreement specify an immediate cessation of hostilities and unhindered humanitarian access to the Tigray region. And both sides have agreed there's only one national defense force in Ethiopia, which is no small concession. And they've also agreed a program to disarm, demobilize, and reintegrate the Tigrayan forces, the Tigray People's Liberation Front, or TPLF, combatants. And, you know, both sides have welcomed this agreement. Uh, Prime Minister Abe Ahmed says the government's commitment to peace is steadfast. Um, the U.S., which had an envoy at the talks, has also welcomed the agreement. But it's important to note that the conflict involves more than just these two parties. There is a huge question mark over Eritrea, which has been involved in the conflict with thousands of troops. 
but was not party to the talks in Pretoria. And even during the talks in Pretoria, heavy fighting was ongoing on the ground with government forces capturing key towns. And again, important to note that there has previously been a truce, a five-month truce that was shattered in August. Hmm. Kate, many have called this the world's unseen war. Can you remind us how we got here and what the human cost has been? Absolutely. I think um, a lot of uh, critics have pointed out that while there's a large focus and a lot of media attention on the war in Ukraine, um, uh, this war has been going on for two years now. It started almost two years ago to the day. And it began when the federal government in Ethiopia sent troops into Tigray, accusing Tigray forces of attacking their army camps. Now, you know, Ethiopian politics is, is complicated and there's a long history, but basically Tigrayans used to dominate Ethiopian politics and they feel that they've been sidelined under Prime Minister Abe Ahmed, who you might remember came to power and uh, with a very progressive reputation, he won the Nobel Peace Prize for fostering peace with neighboring Eritrea. But, you know, now hundreds of thousands of civilians have died and there have been allegations of atrocities on both sides with rape used as a weapon of war. Hospitals lack medicines, there are food shortages and the threat of famine. It's early still, but from your vantage point, what could this deal mean for Tigray? Could the outside world now have access to this region? Well, that is what the documents signed today have promised. Um, how long that will take is pretty much anybody's guess at the moment. But, you know, the World Health Organization warned just last week that Tigray has run out of vaccines, out of antibiotics, out of insulin. Some aid supplies did get into the region um, earlier, this, uh, earlier this year. But when the previous truce broke down in August, that stopped. And uh, so it's been, been very difficult to get food and medicines through most of the time. That's Kate Bartlett reporting from Cape Town, South Africa. Kate, thank you. Thank you. Now we're going to board one of the ships connecting Ukraine's vast grain supplies to the world. Russia has allowed shipments out of the Black Sea under an agreement with Ukraine. That deal has helped stabilize global food prices. Russia suspended it earlier this week after accusing Ukraine of a drone strike at sea. Now Russia has reversed course and says the deal can continue. At the heart of the agreement is a tight inspection process with the United Nations and Turkey. And NPR's Fatmatanis got to see how it works. Before this weekend's brief suspension of the grain deal, I rode along with teams of inspectors from Russia, Ukraine, Turkey and the UN as they sail into the Bosphorus waterway to inspect massive cargo ships. A small boat took us to the first vessel of the day, the Tsarevich. The 200-meter ship carried 10,000 tons of sunflower meal from Chornomorsk in Ukraine to Bulgaria. We climbed a 40-foot rope ladder to get on board. The teams went straight to the captain's office. There's a lot of paperwork. Once this part of the inspection gets completed, then they will proceed to the physical inspection. That's UN inspector Christian Santos. 
He says the inspections can take up to four hours as they look for weapons or stowaways or anything that especially Russia, which effectively blockades Ukraine, might object to. The teens will proceed to inspect all of the compartments, starting off at the bridge and then all the crew's quarters and uh, finishing with the galley. Since early August, more than 10 million tons of Ukrainian grain has been exported, most of it wheat and corn. The deal has been a lifeline to Ukraine's crippled economy and helped stabilize global food prices. On deck, inspectors prepare to go into large cargo vaults where they will wade through mounds of loose sunflower meal. The Russian inspector takes a sample for his record. Meanwhile, at the master's office, Captain Edmund Serapian from Bulgaria isn't happy with how long he's had to wait to get an inspection. You know, I'm already 40 years at sea, but waiting without any serious reason for more than 10 days is ridiculous. There's a huge backlog of ships anchored and waiting. The grain deal is a complicated operation in a war zone with dangers of mines in the Black Sea. This ship is headed to Bulgaria, which is on the Black Sea, but had to come down to the Bosphorus first for inspection. If everything goes okay, and tonight uh, we succeed to pass uh, the Istanbul Strait, tomorrow noontime, inshallah, we will be in Varna. It means one month and one day. The inspectors pile back into the captain's office for a final pass through the checklist. The Tsarevich is officially good to go, and we climb down the rope ladder back to our little boat. Russia's brief suspension didn't disrupt much. For a few days, Russian and Ukrainian inspectors weren't participating, and some ships were delayed leaving Ukraine. After Russia says it got Ukrainian security guarantees, things are expected to return to normal. The agreement itself comes up for renewal on November 19th, and the UN and Turkey are pressing for that, hoping that Ukraine and Russia will continue to work together to let food get out to the world despite the war. Fatma Tanis, NPR News, Istanbul. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. In the final days of the 2022 campaign, no state is proving more competitive than Nevada. Republican candidates are in a dead heat against Democratic incumbents for governor, Senate, and the House, in large part by making inroads with Latino voters. NPR political correspondent Susan Davis reports from Las Vegas on why the parties see this voting bloc as critical to their future success. Lalo Montoya estimates he's knocked on about 10,000 doors since August, just like this one in an apartment complex a couple miles west of the Strip. He's an activist with Plan Action, a progressive organization in the state, and like many Democrats here, he's on edge. I'm nervous about everything. I think we do our best. But there's so much misinformation that we're going up against. No voting bloc is being watched closer here than the state's Latino population, which historically has voted overwhelmingly Democratic. Donald Trump won 35 percent of the Latino vote in 2020 and lost the state by just two points. 
So even small inroads by Republicans could swing close races in their favor. We believe that we're going to have a red wave here in Nevada because we are focusing on, on the issues that concern Latinos. That's Jesus Marquez, a conservative activist who's advising Republican Adam Laxalt's Senate campaign against incumbent Catherine Cortez Masto, the first Latina to serve in the Senate. Marquez says Republican campaigns are heavily focused on the economy in a state where Latinos have been hit hard by inflation. Even Democratic voters like retiree Mike Sanchez concede life is pretty punishing right now in this working class state facing the third highest gas prices in the country. Well, it's high all over. You go uh, anywhere and it's a problem. With this economic climate, Democrats believe threats to abortion access can help tip races in their favor. Nevada is one of 16 states that protects abortion rights under state law. Abortion was the single motivating factor for Namir Sanchez, a 31-year-old first-time voter who voted early at a local community college. Abortion, it seems like Democrats are way more open-minded. But here's what makes Nevada hard to predict. Like a plurality of the state's voters, Sanchez is an independent. And she split her ticket between Democrats for governor and U.S. House, an independent candidate for U.S. Senate, and then Republicans for all local offices down the ballot because she says the GOP is better for police. Because uh, Democrats just kind of seem like they're not helping them out. Rui Teixeira is a liberal scholar at the conservative American Enterprise Institute who has studied shifting demographics and how they can change politics. He says Democrats face a twofold problem with Latinos right now. The party's not meeting their economic needs in real time, and many feel socially alienated. Well, they're just, they're just not that liberal. I mean, the Democratic Party has become a much more culturally liberal party, pretty much down the line. Race, gender, crime, immigration, you know, what's taught in the schools, you name it. Nevada is not just critical to the balance of power in this election, but a potential bellwether for how competitive Republicans can be with this voting bloc in future elections. Here's Marquez again. And I think it's going to be a trend that it's going to, it's going to end up with uh, the Latinos coming up and saying, OK, we know Democrats should no longer take our vote for granted. And I think that is something that is, 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 is there to stay. Democrats also see Latinos at the heart of their party's future. Democrats in the state are lobbying the Democratic National Committee to change the presidential nominating calendar to make Nevada the new first-in-the-nation state for 2024. Susan Davis, NPR News, Las Vegas. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 5.48, and ahead on All Things Considered, you'll hear about house races becoming more competitive in California's Orange County, a longtime Republican stronghold where some Asian Americans have lost faith in the GOP. Also, you'll get the story on Planet Money's acquisition of a never-before-released 47-year-old song about inflation. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by LabShares Newton, offering state-of-the-art BL2 labs with a range of services and amenities just outside Cambridge. Learn more at LabShares.com. Stay informed about a full range of developments in the news. Listen on the WBUR mobile app while you're working out or heading out the door to work. It is 59 degrees in Boston, lows in the mid-40s overnight. Tomorrow and Friday, you can expect sunny skies and highs in the upper 60s. And on Saturday, mostly sunny with temperatures reaching the mid-70s. This is WBUR.
WBUR supporters include Soaring Hawk Meditation Center, celebrating the present moment with a new exhibit on mindfulness, located in Littleton, Mass. More at SoaringHawkCenter.com. I've been looking at the uptick in threats to members of Congress for over a year now, talking with members about threats they receive daily. And it just didn't feel surprising that something like this would happen. It felt inevitable. I'm Michael Barbaro. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Tonight at 8 on WBUR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Earlier this year, our Planet Money podcast got their hands on a song about inflation that was recorded 47 years ago, but never released. So to explain how the music industry works, they're releasing it. From Planet Money Records, here's Erica Barris and Sarah Gonzalez. This is a song we became obsessed with. Inflation is in the nation. Inflation, the song, was written and recorded by Ernest Jackson, backed by a Baton Rouge band called Sugar Daddy and the Gumbo Roo. Yeah, Sugar Daddy and the Gumbo Roo. <laughs> Ernest Jackson has been making music since he was 14, but he's never made it in the music industry. I've never been signed by a label. That's my hope and dream. Everyone from this band went on to be pretty successful musicians, playing with famous people. And when the keyboardist, Kenny Landrum, sent us the song, he said they wanted the same for Ernest. He's uh, one of the best singers I know. So we decided to try to start our very own record label to understand the music industry. So we called up a lawyer to the stars. Well, I talked to Stevie not too long ago. This is Don Passman. And that Stevie is Stevie Wonder. Don negotiates record deals for a lot of big-time musicians, like Taylor Swift, Quincy Jones, Stevie. Wait, can we be a, can we be a label? Sure, why not? Like, what do we have to do to be a label? Say you're a label. <laughs> All right, we're a label. Planet Money Records. Don says a typical record contract, even for an established musician, is this. The musician gets 20% of what the song makes. The label gets 80%. So if we were acting like a real record label and we made $100? The artist would get 20% or $20. And we get 80? That seems unfair. Yeah, seems like a bad deal for the artist, right? But Don says the label is the one doing all the -the behind-the-scenes stuff. Marketing and negotiating contracts. Taking the legal and financial risk. So I think we're like a nice record label. Oh, like, he gets 80%, we get 20%? Yeah. No, that's, that's, it's, it's, uh, nobody would make that deal, ever. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I, I would go so far as to say congratulations. That may possibly be the worst record deal I've ever seen from a record company <laughs> point of view. <laughs> okay, our deal isn't quite as bad as it sounds, because in addition to acting like the label, we are also acting like a publisher. Both those things generate money in different ways. So if this song does make money, we have more pots of money to pull from. So we write up our deal, put it in a briefcase, and head to Baton Rouge to hand-deliver it to our artist. So we have something for you. What is it? What do you think it is? Oh, my God, I don't have any idea. (laughs) Okay. Oh, is that the contract? We tell Ernest we are going to start by just 
uploading the song to every music streaming site there is and that making money is not going to be easy. To make money, lots of people need to listen to the song. They need to stream it. For every stream, the big music streaming sites like Spotify and Apple Music, they pay out between a third of a penny and a full penny per play. And not all of that always goes to the artist. There are actually online calculators where you can figure out across all the streaming sites how much money you can make, hypothetically. So I'm pulling up my little royalty calculator. Okay. So if a million people listen, we make $4,000. Okay. If a million people listen, you get 3200 80%. You I get, get the 80%. 80% and y'all get the 20 Yeah. But however much we make, it's going to have to be sliced and diced in more ways than we expected. Don Passman, our music biz lawyer, says normally you do pay the other musicians. Now, they don't have to get the same thing Ernest does. In fact, they shouldn't. Don says the singer gets most of it, especially because in this case, the singer wrote the song and the melody. Sugar Daddy and the Gumbo Roo was kind of like backup. So Don says the standard deal for them is a flat fee and waivers. They waive their rights to the song. So we created waivers for the band. But when they go out, some of them are not happy. Well, the contract as written is completely unusable. Um, This is Kenny the keyboardist again. In case this song does become popular, he wants a real share in it. He wants royalties. The amount of income generated by this thing, which may not be a hell, I don't even know if it's going to generate $200. I don't know, but I don't care. All right. There are a few ways to get royalties on a song. Like, you could have a copyright on the song. And within this copyright, there are two ways to get paid out. There is a songwriter share for the person who wrote the lyrics, wrote the melody. And then there is what is called a publisher share. Kinney is saying he wants the band to have a piece of this slice of the royalty pie, the publisher share. So not Ernest's part. We're not taking from the songwriter part of money and And only from the music. Right, and we don't want that. And this part, this is the part artists in the know often want in on. This is the part they can conceivably make money. And Ernest thinks the band should get something. Of course they should get something. I'm not saying they shouldn't get nothing. Let them have it. And let's get the bowl game on, okay? We should say it is really the band who should determine who gets what share of the song, not us. So they did that, and we ended up with a contract. There are many different royalties to divvy up. One is called the public performance royalty on the underlying music composition. And this one is pretty representative of the whole deal. On this royalty, Ernest will get 67.5% of the profit. The rest of the band splits 17.5% and we get the remaining 15%. Accountants will spend the next few years splitting up this little sliver of a song and that little sliver of a song. It is actually all very complicated. And Kenny, he's kind of like, yeah, that's the price of getting into this business. Well, I hope we have a hit. It'll all be worthwhile if there's a hit. If you don't, it hadn't cost anybody anything but a little bit of time at this point. Well, it costs us a fair uh, amount. Yeah, we've, we've spent some money. We have already spent at least $10,000 on lawyers alone. But we went all in on this song. And Ernest, he is ready. It feels damn good. Let's see what happens. And we are happy to announce we have dropped our single. You can now hear Inflation the Song in its entirety wherever you stream your music. People, stop what you're doing and listen to what I have to say. 
We're trying to see if we can make this song a hit. So we need people to listen to it. Yeah, stream it. You know, get it, get it on, get it online. Pull it down, y'all. Listen to this song. The song is called Inflation by Ernest Jackson and Sugar Daddy and the Gumbo Roo. Brought to you by Planet Money Records. Erica Barris, Sarah Gonzalez, NPR News. Support for Planet Money comes from Progressive. Progressive commercial insurance protects small businesses, from retailers to tradespeople. Progressive covers a variety of business needs with a range of coverages. More at progressivecommercial.com. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from FINRA, seeking arbitrators who can give back to their communities by lending their professional knowledge and expertise to help resolve disputes. Learn more at finra.org slash become an arbitrator. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of z Pure Z's Gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. And from Japaigo, committed to delivering transformative healthcare solutions for women and families. Japaigo believes that where a person lives should not determine if they live. More at jhpiego.org. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm Sharon Brody. It is 59 degrees in Boston. Coming up on 6 o'clock, as all things considered, continues. Mostly clear skies tonight with lows in the mid-40s. Tomorrow and Friday, you can expect sunshine with highs in the upper 60s. Saturday should be mostly sunny with highs reaching the mid-70s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Harvard Art Museums with Dare to Know, a new exhibition exploring the compelling role of prints during the Enlightenment. Free on Sundays, harvardartmuseums.org. I'm senior business reporter Yasmin Amr. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. In the longtime Republican stronghold of Orange County, California, some Asian Americans have lost faith in the GOP. Aggies can no longer wear the Republican label at this time, especially after the party tried to whitewash what happened on January 6th. It is Wednesday, November 2nd. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good evening. I'm Sharon Brody in for Lisa Mullins. Ahead, you'll hear about Israeli reactions to the news that former Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, with a far-right government, could be in a position to take power again. Also, the best part of waking up has not necessarily been Folgers in your cup, but the company is now trying to brand the coffee as cool. Marketplace has a full roundup of business news at 6.30. It's 6.01. First, this news.
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. The Federal Reserve continued its crackdown on inflation today, ordering another big jump in interest rates. NPR Scott Horsley reports the central bank boosted its benchmark rate by three-quarters of a percent. By raising interest rates, the Fed hopes to tamp down demand and bring soaring prices under control. Annual inflation in October was three to four times as high as the Fed would like. The central bank said in a statement it's strongly committed to getting inflation back down to its target of 2%. Interest rates, which were near zero in the spring, have increased at the fastest pace in decades. That's making it more expensive to borrow money, to buy a home or a car, or carry a balance on your credit card. Rising borrowing costs have already put a big dent in the housing market, but consumer spending has so far held up fairly well, bankrolled in part by additional savings that people socked away early in the pandemic. Scott Horsley, NPR News. Washington. In places where abortion is becoming more difficult to access, some providers are turning to mobile clinics. Planned Parenthood is preparing to launch a new clinic in an RV to serve the St. Louis area, a part of the country where, as NPR's Sarah McCammon reports, access to such services has been sharply reduced. The new mobile clinic will soon offer abortion pills across southern Illinois, a state where abortion remains legal, to patients coming from across the region. Laquetta Cooper is Planned Parenthood's regional operations director. This will be helpful so that they don't have to travel, like I said, three to five hours trying to get um, the abortion care that they need. Missouri and many of Illinois' other neighboring states have implemented abortion bans or could do so soon. A group called Just the Pill is operating a similar mobile clinic in Colorado with plans to expand. Sarah McCammon, NPR News, St. Louis. As the midterm election approaches, public health advocates say they are alarmed by the rise of anti-vaccine rhetoric in the U.S. NPR's Jeff Bromfield says it's a consequence of the pandemic. Organized opponents of vaccines used to be apolitical, but the pandemic made them shift to the right where they found allies fighting masks and lockdowns. This election cycle, several Republican candidates have made fighting vaccine mandates a talking point. That worries North Saunders, executive director of the Safe Communities Coalition, a pro-vaccine group. It's really unfortunate that an issue that has saved so many lives has become partisan and hyper-political. For now, most of the rhetoric is focused on COVID vaccines, but Saunders worries that other childhood vaccines, such as those for measles and polio, may soon become political targets. Jeff Brumfield, NPR News. Private sector jobs report out today shows U.S. payrolls growing by a larger than expected amount. The jobs numbers from payroll processor ADP showed jobs rising by 239,000 last month. On Wall Street, the Dow dropped 500-plus points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. The Boston City Council has passed a new electoral district map. Today's vote follows weeks of negotiation. The map would move a part of South Boston with multiple public housing projects from Council President Ed Flynn's district to the district of Councilor Frank Baker. Baker also would lose a chunk of his current district. Both Flynn and Baker voted against the map, but it passed by a vote of nine to four with support from the council's more progressive members. The measure now will go to Mayor Wu. She will either sign it or veto it. 
Governor Baker has signed a bill putting new guardrails on step therapy. That's the process by which insurance companies make some patients try cheaper drugs before they can access the more expensive medication they've been prescribed. Mark Heimovitz with the American Cancer Society's advocacy wing says step therapy can be inefficient. For example, Heimovitz says... When a person with a chronic illness switches insurers, the new provider will sometimes make the patient retry a drug that already is known not to work. This new law that was just signed will ensure that a patient won't have to do that again to get the prescription drug they need to manage their illness. The bill previously passed both chambers of the state legislature without a single no vote. Two local organizations have filed a lawsuit against the Environmental Protection Agency over pollution in the Charles, Mystic, and Neponset Rivers in Boston. The pollution comes from stormwater runoff. The Charles River Watershed Association and the Conservation Law Foundation say the EPA has failed to act quickly enough to force private businesses to reduce that runoff. The EPA said in September that it will begin this enforcement. A graduate student at Northeastern University has been sentenced to 30 years in a prison in Saudi Arabia. The Associated Press reports Prince Abdullah bin Faisal al-Saud is a member of the Saudi royal family. The AP says officials in that country monitored a phone call in which he spoke with relatives about the imprisonment of a cousin. He was arrested upon his return to the country, and his sentence was increased to 30 years in August. The AP reports Saudi surveillance on Saudis living in the U.S. has been stepped up over the last five years. In sports tonight, the Celtics take on the Cavs in Cleveland. It's 56 degrees in Boston. Tomorrow, sunny. Highs in the upper 60s. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by EBSCO, dedicated to bringing patient engagement and shared decision-making to the clinician-patient conversation with its Clinical Decisions Suite. Learn more at clinicaldecisions.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California, which is a state that's usually pretty predictable during election season. But this year, there are several competitive House races happening in Orange County, which has been a Republican stronghold for nearly a century, but has veered left in recent decades. One force behind that shift is the county's growing share of Asian-American voters. Nationwide, Asian-Americans are the fastest-growing racial or ethnic group. And while it is an ethnically diverse group of voters, nearly two-thirds of them voted Democrat in the last two elections. But now, in these midterm elections, Democrats are worried that some of that recent Asian-American support could erode, which could make all the difference in close races like California's 45th district. The campaign for the Democratic candidate in this race is unfolding on the second floor of a strip mall right above a pho restaurant in the heart of Orange County. We need all the luck right now. (laughs) This is the campaign office of Democrat Jay Chen, one of two Asian Americans competing for this seat. And on a recent weekend, volunteers like Malia Williamson prepared to canvas voters in this majority Asian American congressional district. Asian American voters are, there's a bit of hesitation when it comes to voting, and we need to reach out to them and let them know that their vote does matter. 
Their vote does matter to Chen's campaign because Republican Michelle Steele is slightly favored to win this race. And, you know, even though Chen's a Democrat, his volunteers have been courting Republican Asian-American voters who've grown disillusioned with their party. It's a shift that Huang Nguyen, a Chen volunteer, has seen happening in his own Vietnamese-American family. They were formerly Republicans, and they just feel like the Republican Party has been too extreme for them. And that is saying something. These are lifelong Republicans. Over time, the Republican Party lost its way in terms of not investing enough in the growing Asian American population and diversifying Asian American population in Orange County. Karthik Ramakrishnan is a professor at UC Riverside, and he directs the National Asian American Survey. He says this movement of Asian American voters away from the Republican Party, it's been happening all over this country in recent decades. What you saw between 1992 and 2012 was the most dramatic shift for any group, not just racial group, any voting demographic in this country, shift from the Republican Party to the Democratic Party. So Asian American voters voted for George H.W. Bush over Clinton. And by 2012, you know, they had among the strongest levels of support for Obama over Romney. One of those voters who swung to the left for Obama is Eugene Hung, a 51-year-old Chinese-American voter in Orange County. 2012 is the first time I, I voted Democratic for the presidency. Hung says, look, he voted Republican for decades, but he voted for Obama in 2012 because he says he saw the Republican Party changing in ways that didn't make him feel included. We don't seem to be as welcome in the Republican Party. I mean, they purposely seem to be emphasizing rhetoric and policy that seems to say to people like me that we don't really need you. And now... Hung isn't registered with either party. To better understand how this political shift is playing out today among Asian American voters, we talked to two longtime Republicans who are in the middle of rethinking their allegiance to the GOP. The first is a former Republican politician from Orange County, Tyler Deep, who's Vietnamese American. He was a state assemblyman and served on his city council. Now, Deep supports Republican Michelle Steele, but he recently deregistered from the Republican Party. I just can no longer wear the Republican label at this time, especially after the uh, Republican Party uh, tried to whitewash what happened on January 6, uh, 2021. It was really the last straw for me. I believe at this time the Republican Party is not a party of ideas, or principle, uh, it is now becoming a party of one person. And, and because of that, I re-register to no party preference, or in this case, like, a, like an independent. Meanwhile, Violet G., who's still a registered Republican, is volunteering for her district's Democratic House candidate, Katie Porter. G's a Chinese-American voter in Orange County. At this moment, I feel like a registration doesn't really matter, right? I want to do the right thing and choose the right leader rather than see the party. So I'm looking for a good candidate. I asked Deepin Ji what values first drew them to the Republican Party. So at that time, I feel like the Republican policy is um, better to the middle class and also care about the like, family values, right? Mm -hmm. But I think back then, family values doesn't mean you are like, homophobia, you know. So there's no such divided opinions like today, you know. That back then I feel like everyone's pretty calm. 
and randomness. It didn't feel as polarizing, the politics back then. Yeah, exactly. What about you, Tyler? What drew you to the party? It, it was opportunity and the ability to make something out of my life by being a Republican. Uh, and what attracted me to stay in the party, uh, the GOP, because of uh, freedom, uh, the ability to uh, work hard and make something out of your life uh, as the first generation immigrant. Um, I value that a lot. Mm. Uh, and and I think that's something that also attracted a lot of Asian American uh, to the Republican Party. Well, yeah, we just heard Tyler articulate some of the values that he believes are Republican values. Violet, was there some point, a time where you felt the Republican Party lost you in some way, lost your vote? Yeah, I, I feel like it is, right? So I think uh, since Donald Trump, I started losing the faith. Uh, on this party. I don't believe this party is is Republican anymore, to be Mm -hmm. honest. I want to delve into that a little more. You felt alienated from the Republican Party increasingly during the Trump administration. Can you explain why? What did you see? What did you feel during the Trump administration that made you disconnect from the party? Yeah, like uh, starting in 2016, I personally experienced like a, a racial discrimination even on the street. Like for example, one night I was in like a nearby Target parking lot. I was in the car and I saw a white lady. She made that Asian face, like lift the, 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 the eyes out to me. Iconic, like insulting to an Asian woman. Right. That's not acceptable. So I feel like a, a, you know, a lot of Asian hate that coming from there. Since 2016, Trump uh, become a president, and he he promote that environment. Uh, before it was not like that obvious, but after 2016, it was really obvious to the community. Tyler, I want to turn to you now. You're a voter in the 45th district now, which is a closely watched swing district in California. I know that you no longer work in politics full time, but you did endorse the Republican candidate in your district, Michelle Steele. So it seems like there are still elements of the Republican platform that appeal to you. Can, can you talk about what those elements are? I, I believe that we should have less taxes in this country and less government involved in, in our daily lives. Like a lot of my friends are small business owners, mm-hmm. just like a lot of first generation immigrants where... You know, they just don't have the ability to go to college. So to make a better life for them and their family, they tend to open up a small shop, a small restaurant. And what they want and what I want is less regulations. You know, like these days, in order to open a, a small company right, mm-hmm. in California, you have to go through so many layer of governments. We just want to be left alone so that we can run our own noodle shop mm-hmm. or, or, or do the thing that we want without seeing a government inspector breathing down our neck. Well, I am curious, which party now do you think does a better job at engaging Asian American voters or seems to be intentionally engaging Asian American voters? Um, I don't know if it's intentional or not, right? But we care about the results, right? So uh, I feel like even like uh, in our district, I'm a volunteer for some uh, like a high school or middle school. I heard from the kids that often they invite like Republican candidates. How do they anyone accept the kids' invitation? But all the Democrats accept the invitation and share stories with the kids. Tyler, you know, many of the candidates running for congressional seats in Orange County are Asian American in this upcoming election, including both candidates in the district where you vote. 
Let me ask you, when it comes to cultivating Asian-American candidates rather than cultivating Asian-American voters, per se, do you think the Republican Party has done a better job in recent years? No. Um, from my observation, after, what, 17 years of, of being on the front line, the Democratic Party and uh, its apparatus are much more intentional in growing a young farm team of future Asian leaders than the Republican Party. Hmm. Uh, I can give you many examples of the infrastructure that the Democratic Party has in place in California to mentor and train young Asian Americans to come into civic or political life. Not only is there a party, but they have invested heavily into nonprofit group that really acts as advocacy group for all things related to a progressive agenda. Whereas in the Republican side, uh, if you will, there's not a lot of that. Can I ask any plans to return to politics for you? Maybe someday when when I feel like my personal politics and appeal to whether Republican or, or, or Democratic voters, then, then, then I'll come back. But I think right now I see a lot of extremes on both sides. And where I fall on the political spectrum, uh, I won't get out of, uh, of any political primaries. <laughs> Tyler Deep is a voter and former Republican politician from Orange County, and Violet G is a voter in Orange County as well. Thank you to both of you so much. This was such a joy to speak to both of you. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 618 and coming up on All Things Considered, a rebranding attempt at Folgers, the biggest seller of ground coffee in the U.S., is trying to overcome its reputation as uncool. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cityside Subaru on Route 60 in Belmont, where the all-new 2023 Subaru vehicles are arriving. Love is out there. CitysideSubaru.com. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org cars. On Wall Street today, stocks closed lower. The Dow dropped 1.55 percent, 505 points to close at 32,147. The Nasdaq closed down 366 points at 10,524. The S&P 500 closed down 2.5 percent. That's 96 points at 3759. Marketplace has business news at 630 here on WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Trust, a private bank offering a full suite of custom financial solutions tailored to its clients. Their team provides private banking, wealth management, and commercial and innovation banking designed to power any ambition. You can visit their offices or connect online at cambridgetrust.com slash waytowealth. Make informed choices on ballot questions and other voting decisions with the WBUR Voter Guide. You'll find answers and explanations at wbur.org slash voter guide. It's 56 degrees in Boston, lows in the mid-40s tonight, tomorrow, and Friday. Sunny, highs in the upper 60s. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include Soaring Hawk Meditation Center, celebrating the present moment, 
with a new exhibit on mindfulness. Located in Littleton, Mass. More at SoaringHawkCenter.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Israel appears to be on the verge of instating what could end up being the most right-wing government in that country's history. Parliamentary elections were yesterday. Most of the results are now in. And the party of former Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has the most votes. Days of coalition talks still lie ahead, but Netanyahu is poised to return to the job he held for a decade until he was ousted last year amid corruption charges. Let's go to NPR's Daniel Estrin in Tel Aviv. Hey there, Daniel. Hi, Mary Louise. Quite the comeback here by Netanyahu if he pulls it off. How did he do it? He consolidated his base. Uh, You know, his his opponents on the center-left were fractured. They were infighting. One iconic left-wing party may not even get any seats in parliament at all, the Meretz party. But uh, meanwhile, Netanyahu uh, made sure that several far-right factions would join forces into one big party. Uh, They were Jewish nationalists and supporters of Jewish settlements in the occupied West Bank and and politicians who are anti-LGBTQ rights. So they all ran together and promised a crackdown on Palestinians. And this is in a year where there have been some deadly attacks on Israelis. So listen to Netanyahu's supporters um, overnight chanting at election headquarters. They're chanting law and order, law and order. Now, the star, uh, the new star of these elections was Netanyahu's ally, Itamar Ben-Gvir. He is far right. And uh, here's what his supporters were chanting. They're chanting death to terrorists, uh, which is an anti-Arab epithet here. So uh, you have to understand Ben Gvir is a central figure in Israel's extreme right. He gained a lot of popularity in this election. He helped deliver Netanyahu to his apparent victory. That apparently is worrying the U.S. State Department. Spokesman Ned Price said earlier today, we hope that all Israeli government officials will continue to share the values of an open democratic society, including respecting minorities. Interesting. So a bit of a kingmaker there. Okay, what about the people who don't like Netanyahu, who are opposed to his coming back into power? Yeah, liberal Israelis are very upset today, uh, posting all kinds of social media memes. One of them I saw says, we turned our clocks back for daylight savings time. Why do we have to turn the clocks back a thousand years backwards? Um, I also spoke with activist Asma al-Qadi. She is among the 20% of Israel who are Palestinian citizens. And she says she's worried about what the far right in power could mean for her community. And they woke up into a nightmare. It's such hard morning to us all. Israel is going to a sad, dark, bad place. She's especially worried, Mary Louise, about... The, this far-right icon I mentioned, Itamar Ben-Gvir, he is expected to be a cabinet minister in Netanyahu's apparent government. Uh, just about 30 seconds left, Daniel, but what are the priorities for this apparent government? Well, analysts I speak to say Netanyahu would probably try to resist major changes in policy toward the Palestinians. He's going to be under heavy U.S. pressure. But analysts are convinced that Netanyahu and his allies want to make radical changes to the judiciary and eliminate some checks and balances. Remember, Netanyahu uh, is on trial facing fraud charges. He wants to avoid prison. That's NPR's Daniel Estrin in Tel Aviv. Thank you.
You're welcome. Folgers is trying to be cool. Though it is the best seller of ground coffee in U.S. stores, the brand has had to confront a painful realization. Its reputation is not great. NPR's Alina Seljuk reports on the coffee company's makeover. You know it's coming, so let's hear it. This jingle is possibly the most famous thing about Folgers, an ad campaign so successful we're still singing it almost 40 years later. Except it's almost 40 years later. Is Folgers the best part of waking up? When I began asking this, I got answers like Ayana Jackson's. It's sludge in your cup. It's just not. Sorry, Folgers. <laughs> Jackson from Maryland is a strong no. It's what my parents drank. It's what my grandma drank. Luke Simmons is proud to carry on the tradition. There have been a couple of times uh, where I've offered my friends some coffee and they've been like, what kind is it? And I'll be like, it's a good old Folgers motor oil. <laughs> so people have made fun of you. Oh, yeah, definitely. Simmons lives in Arizona and starts every morning with a cup or two of black coffee, usually Folgers. It's the first cup of coffee I ever had was a cup of Folgers coffee made in my mom's auto drip. A carafe brewed on a timer shared with family before school and work. Classic, right? That's a nice way to put it. Candidly, many consumers were dismissing Folgers as their grandmother's coffee. That's the way Jeff Tanner put it. He's in charge of the brand as the head of marketing at J.M. Smucker, the parent company of Folgers. Well, we could certainly see it in our sales numbers. We had been losing market share for quite some time. The brand had been losing relevance. It's almost 170 years old, a throwback in a time of single origin nitro lattes. Tanner says his team still found the product itself testing well, but its perception needed a wake up. Along came a radical idea, an ad campaign that says, heck yeah, we're grandma's coffee. As Joan Jett rocks her 80s counterculture anthem, there's a parade of others who are cool with Folgers, the crew of the company's roastery in New Orleans, some local female bikers, brass music star Trombone Shorty. A mainstream brand attempting an earnest snub to coffee snobbery. Tanner admits he took some convincing to agree to this campaign. Who goes out there and says, well, we know some of you don't think we're that good, but... We don't care. The hope was to appeal to millennials and the Gen X. Tanner says it worked. In recent months, data from research firm IRI showed Folgers gaining ground with those age groups faster than competitors. Every year, Folgers sells over a billion dollars worth of ground coffee. And right now, in the moment of high inflation, it's drawing shoppers away from pricier brands. We are seeing and we continue to expect to see consumers trading down. Our hope and belief is that we're not seeing it as a trade down. Just because it's cheaper doesn't mean it can't be cool, which is what we were going after. Okay, ready? Yes. I told my colleague Mary Yang about the story. At 22, she's the newest generation of coffee drinkers. She didn't associate Folgers with a bad reputation, but she'd also never bought it. I found an old Mr. Coffee machine in our office kitchen, and we did the thing. I don't think I've ever used one of these in my life. It's hot, all right. Mm, we definitely made it too light. 
You know too much about coffee. Turns out I made old school coffee for a former barista. She was kind and said she would totally finish the cup. Later she confessed she did not. Pro tip, you gotta drink it while it's hot. Alina Selyuk, NPR News. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm Sharon Brody. Next at 630, it's Marketplace. You'll get the story on a food truck delivering affordable, fresh produce to underserved neighborhoods in Buffalo. You'll also consider a prediction that the global demand for international shipping containers will fall in 2023. That and more just ahead on Marketplace at 630. 435 House seats, 35 Senate seats, 36 governorships, and countless local positions up for election this month. Keep listening to WBUR for the midterm updates you need. It's 56 degrees in Boston, lows in the mid-40s tonight, tomorrow and Friday, sunny skies and highs in the upper 60s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Tapas 529 in Melrose for sharing and sampling Spanish and Mediterranean taste sensations. Reserving now for private holiday parties. Tapas529.com.